When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. have searched far and wide, but finally, after an exhaustive research project on the part of not only me, but my staff, we have discovered the only man who, of any renown anyway, who appears not to have classified documents in his home or his office. Yes, that's right. Uh, Among the many accolades that can be said of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, Veteran radio and TV broadcaster, expert on space and astronomy, edutainer, podcaster at WABCRadio.com. You can add that as best as we can tell, he has not yet mishandled classified information. And we're grateful for it because that means he's got an hour to spend with us talking about space. Steve, it is great to talk with you, my friend. Thanks, as always, for joining me on the radio. Good morning to all you and the listeners out there. And I say yes, definitely, categorically, no classified documents anywhere within my reach. How about that? <laughs> Outstanding. All right. Uh, there's a lot to get to. And believe it yeah. or not, callers are already queuing up uh, to ask you questions. And if people want to do that, they can do so at 800-848-9222. If people have not heard our uh, biweekly conversations before, you're in for a real treat because we're going to talk about space. We're going to talk about uh, anything that's in the sky. We're going to talk about aviation. We're going to talk about anything that involves looking up. And if you have questions about specific matters that we don't get to, we'll try and take as many of your calls as we can. 800 848 9222. Let me ask you about a story that um, some people have found kind of frightening and others have found uh, very surprising. And that's that the fact that we're seeing in the sky fewer stars, but we're seeing more light. Why, when we look up in the night sky, are we seeing fewer stars? What's going on? Well, Frank, it's an interesting question, and here's the basic answer. Obviously, populations shifting around the world, there are very few super dark locations on Earth. If we were to pick two right now in this early morning show, I would say the Atacama Desert of Chile, where some of the largest telescopes in the world, that still has, I would think, one of the best areas of dark skies. And let's not forget Antarctica. That's an area that obviously doesn't have a lot of people. But as we continue to see cities grow and Right here, let's say in Phoenix, Arizona, as we talk later about this Comet ZTF, I was out the other morning, right around 3.30 in the morning, with a pair of binoculars looking for the comet. And we're the fifth largest city in America, and still, Frank, the extinction, meaning the light, the extinction of the stars is pretty well pronounced. But in a more scientific way, in a scientific answer, astronomers and space scientists are saying 
that the increase of light pollution, that's the term, is increasing at an astronomical rate, no pun intended, at about 10% a year. And if you take a look at these different websites out there, I mean, there's literally hundreds of them that show the Earth at night. We're seeing, of course, along the East Coast, not a good reason not to listen to the show and, of course, not to look at the sky. You can still see things. But the point is the light in the sky that's artificial lighting is diminishing so much of what we see, obviously. Now, most people are probably wondering, well, what might be the culprit? Just big cities, more lights? Actually, we're talking about LED light. You know, light-emitting diodes are now also, I hate to use the word, part of the problem. They were once part of the solution for energy consumption. You know, I put a whole bunch of them in my RV so I could lower the amount of energy that that RV is using when you're riding down the road. But the blue light that is coming from the spectrum on that is thought to also increase the ability of light pollution. Like they remind us, right, Frank, don't stare at a blue screen, your, you know, your computer screen all night. They have, what, these blue glasses that protect your eyes. We're having an overpopulation of LED lighting and other man-made lighting to decrease the skies. So let's hope in the next 20, 30 years we can still do this show and still tell people what to see in the sky. But are, does this mean anything for people listening to us other than, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'll describe a mild annoyance at not being able to see our favorite constellation anymore? Does the increase in light pollution lead to any sort of long-term effects? I mean, we've heard a lot over the years about how uh, seeing the sun, which, as right. we know, is a star, can lead to a decrease in vitamin um, – see, not seeing the sun can lead to a decrease in vitamin D. Does not seeing the stars – have any sort of physical or a psychological effect on anybody as far as we know? I'm not sure, but I always say the truth and always tell the truth here. I would say this way, not being a medical doctor in this. We also know that the problem of the blue light, which is coming from our screens, and now we're talking about LEDs, that could have an issue with people and their ability to sleep properly. And I can't say that categorically. It's just a pretty educated guess. But the problem is when we're typically going out into the nighttime sky to look at, say, an object, let's say you're out in the middle of somewhere in Central Park, you can still see bright planets, you can see the moon. But obviously the total population with the big cities and also the increase of this man-made lighting, you know, non-natural lighting out there is increasing it. And another big problem that I see is I drive along freeways like people do. So many of these gigantic LED signs say, I'm a capitalist at heart. But the problematic thing is it's what's extincting out the nighttime sky. But I'm not sure, Frank, what that has as a long-term effect or a short-term effect Mm. on the health of human beings. It's just that, for the most part, I would say simply it can be kind of an annoyance for those that love this subject. Speaking of the uh, psychological well-being effect of looking at the sun, I uh, brought a story to listeners' attention a couple of days ago about how researchers have found that looking at sunsets or sunrises can actually lead to a tremendously beneficial psychological impact on people. And it's not me saying this. This is some very reputable researchers saying it. Sure. There's a very interesting story about sunsets on Mars. Apparently, sunsets on Mars don't look exactly as they do here, do they? Not at all. And this is very interesting. And I guess it goes back to the question, which we can answer in the backwards way. Why are skies blue in the daytime? But the problematic thing on Mars, the Mars sunsets are blue. And here's why. Because like on Earth, with our own atmosphere here, Martian atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide and iron-rich dust. So this creates a Martian red sky during the daytime. But as the sun sets on Mars, Frank, what happens is the dust preserves the short blue wavelengths of light, 
And we get a most amazing, at least that's what images show from some of the landers. But we know now that Martian sunset should appear blue. Now, wouldn't that be one of the most incredible sights in nature, seeing just the reverse, basically, of what we have here on the Earth, all due to a lot of the things that are going on in the Martian atmosphere? Remember, carbon dioxide is the main constituent and a heck of a lot of iron-rich dust, which probably floats around. I haven't been there yet, but from the images that we're getting to see from rovers, and even from spacecraft up above, hmm. that would be a most amazing sight to see. And I think there's actually some images from these particular rovers that actually show just what I said to be an absolute confirmed fact. So if any of us are ever on Mars and we use the expression once in a blue sunset, it probably <laughs> won't mean exactly what it does here. Not at all. But there's another factor that we have to consider. If you were on the surface of Mars... The astronomers are telling us, space scientists more precisely, that the size of the sun is only two-thirds, obviously, the diameter, since it's much farther away. But you're still getting a good amount of light on the surface of Mars. It would be like an eerie day if, God forbid, anybody's been anywhere near a forest fire. You can see how the sun in the daytime looks as if it's just an orange or yellow ball in the sky, and all kinds of things mm. are happening because of dust. So the Martian atmosphere changes. It's variable. And here's what happens. Mars has some of the most salacious, Frank, uh, windstorms. They have, like we have here in Arizona, we call them summer haboobs when the monsoon season kicks in. And people who've been out in the West and other parts of the world, they do know that this particular phenomenon exists. But literally, we can have a beautifully clear day, let's say here in Phoenix, and out of the afternoon heating, you know, the ambient heating in the atmosphere, the moisture going up, big thunderclouds are forming. And what they do is when they collapse, that air gets pushed down. And what do we have in the deserts here? Plenty of dust. So I've seen it come through my garage door in one storm. The whole sky was orange, and my car looked like it came out of some kind of a paint wow. factory, not the choice of my favorite color. Wow. That is wild. <laughs> yeah. uh, talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. One thing that people have been uh, emailing me all week about, and I have avoided commenting on it because I wanted to ask you about it, is this once-in-a-lifetime green comet that is approaching the Earth. Apparently, this is an exotic green comet that we haven't seen on our planet since maybe the Stone Age. What yes. is this? Well, this particular comet, Frank, and I'm glad we're talking about this, because unfortunately, a lot of the legacy media, I have to say this, they don't get it right. It's the same story, and I'll bring one up, too, about an asteroid that's coming very close to the Earth actually today. And this is a really good news story. But going back to the comet, this particular comet, the news media has been saying, oh, it's a green comet. Yes, that's correct. But if you don't read into the details of a lot of these stories, it makes it seem to the average person out there, hey, a lot of us out there don't you know, know so much. That's why we listen to programs like this, and I'm very appreciative of that. But more importantly, we find out that this particular comet is really not that bright. I was out there in my light-polluted skies in Phoenix, and I saw it as a tiny little smudge. But why is this important? Because comets, if you look at them intrinsically, are still the remnants of the creation of the solar system. And this goes back billions of years. So there, imagine this, if you're in the mind's eye. If you look way out beyond the orbit of Pluto, there's an orbital area around the sun called the Oort cloud. And this was named after a Danish astronomer who obviously, Jan Oort, he was the one who said, you know, outside the perimeter of these planets, way out there, billions of astronomical units, there's this large group of these frozen objects. And these are pretty large. They're the remnants of creation. Some of the nuclei of these comets, Frank, can be upwards of 20, maybe even 100 miles in diameter. 
So the Suns pulled this one back. It hasn't been around in the Suns area since 50,000 years ago. But the good news is it's climbing north in the sky. So over the next few weeks, this comet's what we call circumpolar, meaning it stays up in the northern Mm. sky and it's up all night. It doesn't set. But the interesting thing about this comet is right now, comets can have three tails. There's a dust tail. There's a plasma tail, like charged particles, like a neon tube. And then there's a thing called the anti-tail. And the anti-tail is really an illusion. It's just the angle of which we're looking at the comet. But if you look on big media sites out there, you'll see, like spaceweather.com, you'll see these amazing pictures of the green comet. It'll get closest to the Earth February 2nd by about 26 million miles. And, Frank, we're hoping for another big comet to be coming down the pipeline. We'll talk about that hopefully in future shows. But this one that we'll be talking about later in the future programs might be something that we might get to see, like the Hale-Bopp comet of days gone by, and maybe even the comet that was around that fizzled out, but people saw it, the comet Kahootek of the 70s. So comets are fascinating. This one's not super bright yet, but in dark skies, binoculars are recommended. And that's why we talk about this and tell people the truth, because when you read those stories, wouldn't you agree? Sometimes it's as if the thing is going to hang right in your sky and look like a big electric tube that you just plugged in. Not quite. Absolutely. Talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. By the way, if you want to check out the uh, Dr. Sky blog, you can go to KTAR.com. If you want to listen to the Dr. Sky experience, head on over to uh, WABCradio.com. Steve, uh, half a century ago, people used to get pretty excited about uh, trips to the the moon, not just Americans, but world citizens. And it looks like NASA may be uh, heading in that direction with the Artemis Project. Where are we with the Artemis Project and how soon till we're back on the moon? Well, the answer to that is really simple. The Artemis One was a great success with the dummies on board and the remote control that the uh, people at NASA had, you know, produced and coordinated its amazing flight well beyond the moon. Probably next year, if all goes well, another of the big SLS-type heavy launch rockets. This one, of course, Artemis Two. This time with a crude kind of a replicant of what Apollo Eight did back in the night, late 1960s. And then to answer the question. Artemis Three is an ambitious project to bring humans back to the South Pole of the Moon, probably, and this is the real optimistic uh, date here, probably as early as 2025. Now, what SpaceX has is a project to help develop a lander for that particular mission. That's in development stages, I believe, as we're speaking. And that is going to be quite an amazing mission. We obviously haven't been back to the surface of the moon since the early 70s. And this is going to be just a heck of a ride. But where they're going... This is kind of unusual. During the Apollo era, most of the Apollo landing sites, for the most part, were as close or near close to the equator as possible. That's a lot of details in the background because of orbital dynamics, the ability to land in what we called flatter areas, maybe with the exception of Apollo 15. But this particular mission, as Artemis III will continue and successfully, we believe, land on the moon with astronauts, This will go to the south pole of the moon, which is to me is just an amazing story unto itself. It's an area at the south pole of the moon called the Aiken Basin. It's one of the largest impact areas on the moon. And this is really bizarre because you're not landing in flat regions as much. You're landing in very rugged terrain. So I just hope, and I'm sure the technology is out there, Hmm. to provide a smooth landing, kind of similar to what we saw in the 2001 Space Odyssey movie, when the astronauts went to the moon in that fictional depiction, 
with the great genius Stanley Kubrick. So it looks like 2025, and I think that's a little optimistic, to say the least. All right. Well, uh, fingers crossed. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates in just a moment. We're going to take your calls. We have one, two, three, four open lines, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, joined for the hour by Dr. Sky. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He's one of my favorite people to talk to, not only because he has uh, such a great radio voice, but because he's chock full of knowledge about what's happening in the night sky, and he frames it in in ways that even average ordinary people like me can understand. If you want to check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience, uh, you can get in-depth analysis and conversation on all the subjects we're talking about today, comets, uh, other planets, sunsets on Mars, all sorts of stuff. Just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and search uh, Dr. Sky. You can also check out uh, his uh, Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. All right, uh, Steve, a bunch of people have been queuing up to talk with you. Uh, Let's begin with William in Asbury Park. Hello, William. Wow, it's a real honor, Mr. Scott, because well, good morning. a long-time thank fan of yours. Well, thank Anywho, you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. As a stepping stone for us mining the outer, you know, solar systems, you know, getting rare earth metals from mines, sure. we have to live in space. <clears throat> now, what are your thoughts on space colonies? There was a show I watched as a kid where they had, Basically, it was a giant tube, and through centrifugal force, the tube right. spun to create gravity using mirrors to reflect the sunlight into the colonies, and you had an environment that was much like Earth and the shield in front of the colony to, to shield it from the uh, the bad the bad types of radiation ionized sure. particles. What is your feasibility of, about something like that working out? Well, I think, William, you really bring up a good point. There was a book, and forgive me the name, but... Gerard O'Neill was actually author of that, and he talked about these habitatable you know, areas in space. We all go back to that movie I just mentioned before, 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Kubrick movie. We saw the big wheel in the sky look like a big piece of macaroni. But the reality is we're probably a long way off to really building those type of colonies like a city. But the first thing we have to do is do a replacement for the International Space Station. I mean, it's done its job. It's been, you know, it's done a very good job for the most part in international cooperation up till now, you know, as the Russians are kind of defecting from that. But the other thing is we're probably looking at the next, to answer your question completely, the next of the habitable type space stations will be one actually around the moon called Gateway. 
And we were talking before, William, you probably heard about Artemis three hopefully going to the moon in 2025 with actual astronauts on the surface. They need now a kind of a, you know, a midway point there, kind of a rest place to go back. Instead oh, of just the, the Lagrange points. Right. They could do that. That's the Lagrange points, as you're talking about, are also important. And just to let everybody know what that is, some 60 degrees on either side of a body, let's say like the Earth or Jupiter, you could have these positions where obviously an object is static, you know, static or, st- or almost standing still. Hubble, I mean, the James Webb telescope, excuse me, is kind of at one of those Lagranges. But to put it in perspective, I think the next real feasible way to do what you're talking about, the next iteration is probably going to be the Gateway Space Station, which will be a lunar orbit space station. And even that is probably, what, six, seven years away even to start construction. So there you go, William. But thank you for being interested. One more question, sir. Real quick, William, because a lot of people on the hold here, William. Real quick. Uh, I know they've got anti-gravity technology. It gets into classified stuff. But it's 2023. Where's my hoverboard? I want to shred it. Thank you. Hey, I'm with you, my friend. Thank you, William. (laughs) Thank you. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold, New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, how are you guys? Um, Good morning. So we were talking about light pollution, and yes. uh, I was wondering, there's literally thousands uh, and thou- like uh, space- SpaceX and uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos, Amazon, they have like over 5,000 uh, satellites in, the, yes. in orbit. Does that contribute to light pollution? Yes, John. You know, you brought up something that I wasn't even ready to talk about, but hey, you you knocked it out of the park. Obviously, ground light pollution is of concern. But the more objects that you put up there, just ask the astronomy community. They're aghast that all these images that they're getting spoiled. When they're trying to, let's say, take a picture of a new galaxy billions of light years away. Well, oh, no, here comes this big line across the picture. So that does have reflectivity. Now, SpaceX, give them credit for this. They've looked at ways to dampen or diminish the light from some of these Starlink satellites. Apparently, that has worked. But you're right. There's so many things out there, John, that are in space right now, and they're actually talking about putting up some of these other new type of satellites, which are like a giant big piece of like aluminum foil, if you want to call it, the lack of a better description. They will be used for communications, and some of those things will be brighter than Venus or maybe half as bright as the moon. Hmm. So somehow, well, you really hit it out. You knocked it out of the park, John. You're right. And, uh, the atmospheric satellites, are, I mean, the satellites in space are also contributing to a diminished of the darkness of the sky. And now, real quick, just uh, because there's so many things orbiting us, now, if you wanted to launch something into space, mm-hmm. you would have to calculate, like, and go in between everything orbiting? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it may look like we're, we're talking and describing this to everybody that it's so jam-packed up there. Actually, it starts to get jam-packed at different levels above the Earth. We call it low Earth orbit. That's getting really crowded. But there are areas in there, just like frequencies on a radio, on a radio dial. There's different layers that you could go to. But once we saturate all those, see, the Earth right now, John, actually has a ring. If somebody says, oh, Saturn and Uranus and Neptune have rings, they do, and others do. But we have a ring around our Earth, and what's it made of? Uh, It's made of John and Frank. Of natural of man-made satellites, so that's a big ring called geosynchronous, but the brightness is also being increased by the total number of those in the sky. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll continue with your calls in uh, in just a moment. 
Um, you alluded to uh, SpaceX. Obviously, that's the uh, the Elon Musk foray into mm-hmm. both private and public space travel because uh, he's had no problem partnering with NASA, depending on the specific project. What is the latest on the SpaceX Starships and the Mega Booster? Well, this is really fascinating. It would take hours to go into great detail, but here's the encapsulated version. SpaceX down at Starbase, Texas, is actually on the launch pad with a new iteration of Starship. This is the next of the Starships. They actually had a couple. Actually, one of them actually did the ascent and land safely kind of thing, but now they're moving forward with this incredible booster rocket that's going to be the largest, most powerful booster rocket ever. This will have some 16 million pounds of thrust. Now, that's really off the charts. I mean, even the big SLS Artemis rocket had more power than Elon Musk, you know, heavy, heavy rocket. But this is fascinating. But there's something even more bizarre. There's like this 400-foot tower, like a launch tower. We see them when the NASA rockets go off. This is called Mechazilla. And what's weird about this is it's really cool. It's like true science fiction, like Transformers. It's a large tower, Frank, that has a big grappling arm. And what it can do is it can actually hoist this big booster rocket called Booster 7 and put Starship 24 on top of it. Hmm. But that's not the exciting part that I wanted to tell everybody about. Once this rocket launches, which hopefully, according to SpaceX, I don't have the exact date, maybe as early as late February, maybe March, to test out Starship in orbit. But get a load of this. When that giant Booster 7 rocket launches, just like we have with the Falcon 9 boosters, imagine this monstrous rocket booster coming back and literally going in between the jaws or the claw of the Mechazilla so that it will actually grapple it as it comes down from space, a reusable massive booster rocket, and the same thing will happen with the Starship. Now that, to me get some sort of, what, a Nobel Prize or something like that, if that can be accomplished, that's only the stuff you'd see in a sci-fi movie. That's going to be a reality, according to Elon Musk. Yeah, that is absolutely, absolutely yeah. wild. Uh, all this talk of, uh, of, of light pollution and stars, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite things to do with you is to get a little crib sheet of uh, things that we can look up and, and see, either sure. with the naked eye, with binoculars, or for the people that have a telescope, a telescope as well. What's worth seeing in the next couple of weeks? Well, here we go. The big one happened. I was talking about this with John Casamitidis on his shows, and this is great. We were talking about over the weekend, and still you can see it, if you look to the southwest after sunset, a nice conjunction of both Venus and Saturn have occurred and will continue to occur. They were best on Monday and Sunday, or Sunday and Monday, and they were about the diameter, a little less than a full moon diameter. So you're looking at Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, this bright object, you can't miss it, looks like a searchlight. And just to the lower right on Sunday and Monday, Saturn, which is nearly a billion miles away, that is a very interesting group. But Venus is going to move away from Saturn, so their you know their love affair is kind of slowly separating temporarily. But that's an interesting sight in the sky. And then as we move into the next month, obviously Comet ZTF that we talked about, people should check it out in our uh, Dr. Sky blog, which is also at wabcradio.com. We have the whole, you know, sheet on how to find the comet and best ways to watch it and star mm. charts. People can load that and download that. But coming up in the month of, of February, we have another couple of close conjunctions. But early March, like March 1, how about this? The two brightest planets in the heavens, both Venus and Jupiter, will come together less than a moon diameter in the sky in the southwest after sunset. 
Frank, that's outstanding. That's the stuff of the biblical stories of conjunctions. So that's a few of the things we could go on, but uh, those are some of the highlights, and people can learn more, of course, by checking the podcast and blogs. Absolutely. Let me say hello to Greg in New Jersey. Hello, Greg. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, My question is, when we finally do go back to the moon, will Mm -hmm. the astronauts be broadcasting in high-definition television and sending HD pictures back to our living rooms? And if they do... Yes. Because the moon is a quarter million miles away, will there be a loss in quality in the high-definition pictures, or mm. will it still be crystal clear? Greg, that's one of the greatest questions ever. I've been advocating a little lunar lander like a robot to land right by the Apollo 11 landing site and do it in 8K. But right. I'm not sure what they're going to do here with this new mission. I would imagine they'll have the latest of technologies, but would the signal strength be diminished? I'm not sure. It, it probably could be diminished a slight bit. But with these new technologies here, I think we're going to see something that's really going to have our eyes pop out of our head compared to the very vague and ghostly images that we saw on Apollo, especially the very early ones. But that's a good point, because with this great technology, I'd imagine I want to be with you, Frank, and and, and you, Greg, and all the other listeners here of this fine show, so we can all sit there and gather in some big movie theater. That would be a knockout of the park, wouldn't it? But I'm Yes, yes, yes. And you know what? With the success of the Artemis one, I really believe that we're really going to go back to the moon again. Well, we are, and obviously for other reasons, and a lot of people think it's just for military reasons. No, not necessarily. We're hoping that that's not the case in the long run. But to go out and find resources on the moon, it's an early developmental thing with this helium-3 isotope. This could be something, as Senator Harrison Schmidt and astronaut Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon on Apollo, even Hmm. said, if you can harvest this particular isotope of uh, helium, there is a way to do some process where you could convert it, probably a little more economical than what we don't have now. And great kudos to the folks that are developing the fusion power. You know, we had a more energy output than input in fusion technology over the last month. But yes, harvesting different elements and, and materials on the moon, this will be fascinating. And I just hope in maybe the remaining life that I have, we can watch people go there on a regular basis and make it as usual as people would take a flight of, say, around the world somewhere and return safely. Thank you for the call. I look forward to that HD picture. Absolutely, my friend. Same here. Thank you for the call, Greg. 800-848-9222. Steve, uh, I I think you had said maybe even two weeks ago when we spoke that you had uh, interviewed Buzz Aldrin previously. Oh, yes. And uh, I I saw that he uh, just got married at the age of, uh, of 93 years old. I'll tell you. Buzz Aldrin, uh, I've spoken to him a couple of times, mostly oh, in, yes. in interviews that I've been producing mm-hmm. for others, but it just strikes me as such a character. I- I'm wondering if you can give any insight into Buzz Aldrin, either as a person or what his contributions have meant to the world of space travel or science. Well, I'm glad you asked, Frank. And again, kudos to him. I hope that by the time I'm 93, I'm as happy as I would want to be. But God bless him. I mean, here's a man who actually, the lady he married, and forgive me for not knowing her name, she's also a PhD, as Mm -hmm. he is. And I believe hers is chemical engineering, and she worked in his organization. Right. So I guess that's how they were together. But on this personal note, I've met him many times in person. We actually had him open up. I was asked to open up what I call First Light, an observatory out here in Arizona. And we had him as a guest as part of the, you know, the dais there, of course, his high honor would be a number two on the moon. But he's such an interesting guy to listen to. But if you listen to, and actually, 
I don't know. These are some of the stories that I find most bizarre. I think he was actually suing somebody in court or somebody was suing him about the allegation that he never went to the moon. I think that was the way. And I think the guy lunged at him and he really gave him, uh, I don't know, kind of a knuckle sandwich. So That's he, right. I actually <laughs> interviewed that guy uh, that uh, that Buzz Aldrin punched. And well, then, uh, you're the expert. You he, know, well, better. I, I'm not so sure. Uh, but I thought that was certainly interesting. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me say hello to Mike in Queens. Hello, Mike. Yeah, first of all, I want to thank one of the other calls for answering my uh, space junk question, because it looks like uh, the, the BQE at rush hour up there, I'm sure, right now, <laughs> with all the junk floating around. Uh, the other thing is, um, uh, I, I, I was listening about advertising on the moon, and I love looking at the moon. It's so pure and yes. honest and whatever. And now I hear that they're going to try and do, like, laser advertising on the face of the moon. And I'm just curious, is there any way to stop that, or is that actually a reality happening? Oh, and last thing, would either of you uh, take a one-way trip to Mars to live on Mars for the rest of your life? And I'll take my answers off the air. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Boy, that's a lot there, but you're so right. You know, it's very, very interesting to talk about this. I think I'll go backwards. I don't know if I really have the guts to do a one-way trip to Mars. I mean, I'm being honest with this audience. I think it's fascinating, but if you really read it, I'm sure everybody who'd read the 20, 30, 100-page document about what you can expect, I don't know. I don't think I'm physically in the best shape of my life. I used to be a pretty good athlete, but I don't know if I would do that. That's my personal response on that. But as far as, as talking about the other the other subject like that, I think it's terrible and it's a pretty big disgrace if they would destroy the moon in such a way like that, because obviously look how many billions of years it sat there. Again, no one nation can apparently own the surface of the moon or the moon itself, just like Antarctica. You know, it's not anyone who really claims that that's theirs, though they say they do. But no, I uh, I find that a little bit disturbing. Uh, what about you, Frank? I mean, isn't that weird seeing advertising coming on the surface of the moon? I, I don't think, think so. We need it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm with you 100. percent And uh, I, a little bit. Let me go on record as saying I would not take that one way trip uh, to the to Mars. Well, I'm glad uh, you said it quicker than I did. But you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a little bizarre. Now, let me describe what Mike's talking about. A nine month journey, more than likely, if we're talking one way. And this is very interesting because Dr. Mikolos, who appears, of course, with uh, John sure. Show, a big listener to us as well, probably listening yeah. right now. And I respect his, his knowledge in, the, in that area greatly. But he was bringing up a point about the problematic thing of, you know, having radiation in space. And that's true. So what we would need, what would we need to do? Absolutely. Cosmic rays, which are still penetrating. I don't care how many thick layers of lead or whatever you would use to protect yourself there's still this big high probability that you're in an environment where that's not good for your health overall. So unless there was a way, and I don't know what that way is, we'll leave that to the experts, that would be difficult itself. I don't want to call it a suicide mission. I mean, but from the pure joy of the whole thing, I'll bet you you would find a whole list of people who'd sign up right now, Mm. and they'd be dead serious that they would go. Uh, No, I I think there actually is a wait list, and I think a lot of people actually have uh, signed up for a a mission like that if it ever takes place. So I think think I'll wait. (laughs) I'm I'm with with you. Hey, uh, you alluded to Antarctica before in terms of being a spot for stargazing. What else do we know about Antarctica? Obviously, because of the lack of population there, the lack of civilization there, kind of the most mysterious of all the continents. What do we know about it? Well, it's quite fascinating. I mean, no one can really claim it, but it's actually the world's largest desert. 
Hmm. And many people don't recognize that. And something else that bugs me, too, a few things do, but on on this particular show, we'll stick to astronomy and space. If you look at a regular map of the entire Earth, how many times from childhood, even up to adulthood, you take a look at the map and you see Antarctica, Antarctica, excuse me, as this big, gigantic, massive landmass that looks like at the bottom of the map that it's the biggest thing on the Earth. It's an improper map. It's not showing us the true definition, but not the split hairs. Some of the other things we find out, it's the coldest, windiest, driest, and highest continent on the Earth. The average height of the surface of, of, of Antarctica is about 8,200 feet. And the coldest temperature ever recorded on the Earth back in July of 1983, well, get a load of this, minus 128.6 Fahrenheit. That's pretty unbearable. But it gets really interesting when I talk about this. If I was now in Antarctica, you would say to me, well, Steve, uh, I would ask you, what time is it in New York City? And you would tell me, there's no official time zone in Antarctica. I don't know if people realize that. So any location that has habitation, what they do for convenience is just go on the same time zone. Let's say we had one and you're in New York, that we would have the same time as New York as we're communicating. That's an interesting fact, too. And there's another phenomenal fact, too. At least 11 babies have actually been born in Antarctica. Hmm. You never hear about that. That's another amazing fact. That's wild. I mean, you talk about a (laughs) a unique place in world history. That's Absolutely. And finally, or almost finally, Antarctica has a lake so salty that it doesn't freeze. And it has, according to many geologists, an underground forest that's way under the ice pack. So it might have been, a long time ago, a very habitable place when the Earth and plate tectonics shifted all the continents, as we do know. The planet Earth has plate tectonics. Mars, unfortunately, doesn't, and Mars doesn't have a a magnetic field. But something else, Antarctica is actually larger in landmass than the entire United States. So the bottom line is nobody's sure who discovered Antarctica. There's a long story about that, but it's officially dedicated to, guess what, peaceful purposes, mm-hmm. just like we hope the moon would be and other planetary objects. 800-848-9222. James is in Oregon. Hello, James. Hello. i got one question. What happens in space? Does that affect earthquakes happening on Earth? I'm sorry, sir. I'm trying to understand. In other words, if there's, if you're in space, does an earthquake affect you out in space? Is that what you're saying? No, what what happens in space? Does that affect earthquakes on Earth? Well, yes, it can. And and I can tell you one categorical answer on this is when you have excessive, powerful CME blasts from the sun, there is a propensity where the Earth itself can be affected because all that radiation and energy, the Earth itself could be pushed in a way, very slightly, but that could also magnify itself when it moves through into the Earth's, you know, into the Earth's core. And another thing that we're finding out is interesting, too, is that we're finding out through scientists that the Earth's solid inner core may actually have slowed down or stopped and is about to reverse. So we don't really know truly what happens from the cosmos. All kinds of fields of energy and radiation do affect the Earth. That's a simple way to put it, but uh, the search continues for the culprit. Thank you. 
855-616-1620-888-5222. We're going to continue with uh, Steve Cates in just a moment. If you want to hear more from Steve, you could check out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. You could just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Just search Dr. Sky. You'll not only hear uh, his own podcast, but you'll hear appearances that he's done with John Katzmatidis on his show. So there's a ton of great content on there, including some great mini podcasts as well. We'll continue in just a moment with your calls and a number of questions I have as well. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Black hole sun, won't you come? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, A lot going on in the world of space, in the world of astronomy, and we are just uh, scratching the surface on some of the issues that are uh, interesting a lot of people. Steve, one issue that uh, that caught my attention Mm -hmm. this week was this story about progress being made in experiments to redirect lightning. I mean, this is wild. I don't even know that Benjamin Franklin could have imagined anything like this. Well, higher technology, of course, goes to the top of the uh, the line here. It's very interesting. What apparently scientists, not astronomers, are doing is actually ways to dampen the effects of lightning strikes on big buildings and, you know, big massive structures. What they're actually going to do, or actually tried to do, is fire a very intense beam as a laser up into the sky. Now, these are very powerful lasers. So it would do is what it would do is attract the lightning to the laser mm. light. I don't know where it goes from there. They must have some kind of insulators to protect that from burning up. But that is an interesting concept to divert that type of lightning. Because let's go back to space. You know, we know that buildings get hit all the time, but did most people or do most people know that the Apollo twelve upon its launch was actually going through a thunderstorm and it was struck by lightning as the Apollo Saturn five was headed up to the moon. And up into atmosphere. And apparently, thank thank goodness, one of the astronauts on board in one of the three couches, he knew a certain relay to switch and turn because all their instrumentation went blank. And if it wasn't for that switchover or that one who remembered what to do, that whole mission would have had of abort and that rocket would have exploded over the ocean. Now, I have a little bit of breaking news, if you don't mind. Oh, please, lay it on us. I alluded to this before, that there is an asteroid, get a load of this, folks, asteroid 2023BU. It's a newly discovered asteroid. Why is it important? It's going to pass extremely close to the Earth tomorrow, or today, excuse me, at 4.17 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over South America. Now, don't get too alarmed, folks. It's only 16 feet in diameter. Well, that's pretty big. But guess how close it's coming? Only 2,174 miles over the earth. Now, I'm in Phoenix, you're in New York. The distance as the bird would fly is 2,159 miles. That's the exact diameter of the moon. 
So that object is coming a moon diameter above the Earth, 16 feet in diameter. That's a close shave, don't you think? Oh, and no doubt about it. Uh, that is, uh, that's something. 800-848-9222. Thomas is in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. How you doing? Good, Good Thomas. What's your question? Doing great. Yeah, uh, I saw these uh, documentaries on uh, UAPs with George and Apple on the TV a little while ago. Do yes, you sir. think there's anything out there? Absolutely. I think there's plenty out there. And you're bringing up a very good point. I wish we had more time, and maybe we'd talk about it in depth and you call back the next program. But what we're talking about here is these UAPs. There are so many in the latest release that the government has on these you know, UAP objects, thus UFOs. We're of, say, 5,000 sightings that can't be explained. We have 1,000 or more that are truly unexplained. And I want to get to the bottom of this, like a lot of people out there. I believe very strongly that there's a suppression of information that's pretty obvious from what we should know. It all goes back even way before Roswell. But let's, uh, let's hope that we get some revelations. The strangest one of all is this whole Tic Tac conversation. What the heck are these things that the Navy's seen, documented, F-18 fighters have gone out and scrambled off carriers to actually chase these mm. things? Nothing I know goes from the ocean floor, or not the ocean floor, but the ocean surface, to 60,000 feet in a second and darts across the sky. I don't know anybody that has that kind of technology. So, yes, I'm ready to hear what the real truth is, and let's continue to search for it. You know, there was a story uh, that's gotten a lot of attention in the last 24 hours. A bunch of people have emailed it to me as well uh, that has to do with, uh, and this was put out by Jeremy Corbell, who's been a guest on this show, and uh, it has to do with uh, the possibility of a UFO being photographed over Mosul, Iraq, in 2016. Uh, did you see the photo that has gotten so much acclaim, Steve, and did you I'm have any sort of take on it? I have not seen that at all. Frank, but I know that I see it in my email that you sent me, and I must be honest, I didn't see that. But the answer that I would give over all these things out there, there's so many of these type mm. of sightings coming in all throughout the world, and the simple explanation that it's swamp gas or airplanes or re-entering satellites or meteors doesn't jive with most people, including myself. So there must be some type of technology out there that's coming out. And I know my theory is very bizarre, but here we go with Tic Tacs really quickly. I believe deeply that whatever the Tic Tac technology is, it's truly an you know, intervention between artificial intelligence and the future. This is in the future. Now, the humankind, obviously, not to be negative, let's say the Earth was extinguished with a nuclear holocaust or an asteroid impact. Mm. Most of the remaining humans went underground. I'm talking way into the future here. It could be hundreds, thousands of years. The integration of AI, that's a pretty scary subject out there. That and the biological entity of the human combining themselves together, I believe strongly, I know I sound a little flippant on this, may have had the ability to understand what Einstein was talking hmm. about, of transforming the space-time continuum. So maybe what we're seeing is those objects coming back dimensionally from another world, another time, but closer to us, not out in the galaxy somewhere, and that the integration of artificial intelligence and the, the, the sentient being connection between a biological entity and an artificial intelligence you know, power, may have the ability to transform space and time, and that they may be like an organ. It may be like a, a lung or a heart. This thing has intelligence, but it knows the ability to have us transform space and time. So That's bizarre. you think uh, that there's actually a, a realistic possibility that some of the, uh, the objects that people are seeing, including naval pilots, 
could actually be from, say, the future? I do believe this. I really do, Frank, because if you look at I was reading so many reports during the week here about what artificial intelligence can do. Apparently, it can pass the bar examination with no problem. Oh, and some medical licensing exams and uh, (laughs) and no and and some um, Wall Street exams like the, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, Series 7 type exams and stuff. So I hope people don't think I'm off my rocker here, but obviously I'm entitled to an opinion like everybody. But here it is. I think, yes. I think the ability to move through time and space is the ability to understand what Einstein tried to figure out, that if you can be if you're able to warp the space time continuum, there may be a way to move around interdimensionally. And that's another subject for another time. But, no, I'm open to those possibilities. Folks, it's all in the quantum in the quantum physics world right Hmm. now. You know, the, the strange thing called quantum entanglement. How can something theoretically go faster than light? as if you had a light switch on one side of a galaxy instead of traveling the normal time that light would take it, like 150,000 light years between one part of our Milky Way. But in this quantum entanglement concept, it's able to do so instantaneously moving through space-time. That's bizarre, but that, it's, I don't yeah. make this stuff up. No, that's, that's, uh, that, that's fascinating. Uh, Richard in Manhattan has a question that was on my list as well. Hello, Richard. Richard. Good morning. All right, Richard's got something else to do, so I'll I'll just ask about it. Hey, there was a, a story I saw it. I think it was on uh, Fox News about a radio signal from nine billion light years away, nine billion light years away from Earth, captured by a telescope on Earth. What can you tell us about this radio signal, if anything? Frank, I think they're mostly what's called fast radio bursts. What they are, we're not really sure, but let's say what most astronomers kind of, I hate the word guess, this is what they think, that these signals that are coming out from the early part of the creation of the universe, we're talking the billions of light years, billions of years ago, they may be the energies coming out from these neutron stars or these gamma ray pulsars. In other words, it's like take a lighthouse and it spins. Somehow, some way, so much concentrated energy is there because the thing is so collapsed. The density of, you know, it's like the densest things in the entire universe. They spit out these big blasts. They're like big, big, long lines like a laser would be almost. And I think this is what the energy that they're seeing, not knowing the, you know, the, the source of actually where it comes from. And now there's a whole new classification of stars. We talk about black holes, and we talk about black holes have this thing around them called the event horizon. So now astronomers have theorized, and I think they've got one that they're really looking at, called Bukdal stars, named after the astronomer who developed it. What is it, or, or discovered it, or theorized it? It would be a star like a black hole that has no event horizon, but all it is is just a matter, of, just an area where the concentration of all the energy is so compact. It would be one of the most compact objects in the universe, but without the entire disk around it that we would call that whole region that surrounds most black holes, which means that's what you would fall into. So what's the mechanism of Bukdal stars? There's not really sure, but every day something comes up, Frank. It's even more mysterious and more fascinating, and that's why I'm so privileged and honored to be here with you and and the listeners of this great show. No, no, uh, the uh, privilege is uh, all mine, and uh, I hear uh, from so many of the listeners, they really enjoy your insight uh, insight as well. Hey, um, do you have an opinion, and I'm guessing you do, on the debate that's going on all over the country, really, and especially all over the state, 
over gas stoves. Uh, there's been some concerns, uh, in all seriousness, it's become so cartoonish, yes. the debate, but there's been some concerns that uh, this could lead to uh, not only environmental problems, but breathing and respiratory problems, particularly in young people. Have you looked at this at all? What's your take on this? Well, I guess I'm spoiled because in our nice home, we have one of these wolf stoves, and it's a gas stove, and I enjoy cooking on it. But to being really serious here, obviously there's dangers that we have from gas if somebody leaves it on. You know, the old stories if something was left on and somebody lit a cigarette. Obviously, that's dangerous. But my problem with that whole thing, Frank, is the ability for us to produce enough electric for all the needs that we have across the board. Show me, not you personally, but show me that we can develop enough power and sustain it for electric cars and all the things that we're supposed to go off of. You know, I'm I'm obviously for clean energy, but I always thought that gas was a clean source. I mean, I never quite understood why it's so demonized. Yeah, uh, Steve, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. It's always a treat. Until next time, in two weeks, uh, keep reaching for the stars and keep your feet on the ground. Thank you, Frank. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, a couple of the issues that I really enjoy focusing on this show have to do with trends and the future in education, have to do with trends in the future of religion, especially of the organized variety, and have to do with taking a look at the history and the benefits of radio in general, but specifically talk radio. Well, we are in for a treat because my guest, he is somebody that wears multiple hats, And he happens to be an expert in all three of those areas. If he's not a total expert, he's the closest that I could find. I'm very, very pleased to welcome back Deacon Kevin McCormick, the new superintendent of the schools of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Brooklyn and uh, the former co-host of uh, 77 WABC's Religion on the Line in New York City, a longtime educator and a friend of mine. Kevin, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for getting up early or staying up late with us. Hey, Frank, it's so good to be here. Thanks for asking me. Um, uh, So I'm so glad that you could come. For folks that um, may miss you on the radio or for folks that might not have heard you when you were hosting a radio show of your own, wondering if you can reflect a bit on uh, what your time on the radio was like, what you enjoyed most about it, what surprised you about it, and what you viewed it as an opportunity to do. I I was with Rabbi Joe Potasnik, who uh, now has a show on WABC, uh, Rev and the Rabbi, Rabbi and the Rev, or something like that. Yeah. Um, and we were on from. Uh, I can tell you're a devoted listener. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm back in church in the morning. So that's what I have to do. Um, I was. Uh, we were on. For, I was with Joe from uh, 2006 to 2018. So we were on for 12 years, Sunday mornings. And I first went on, and it was a lark. It was a one. It was a one trick pony, and, and I, I really didn't think I'd ever be invited back. Circumstances were around, and uh, I, I, you know, I got the gig. And and, uh, and so every morning I would come into uh, uh, Manhattan, and uh, Joe and I would have the show for uh, about an hour and a half. Uh, there was a time we almost were there for two and a half hours, and um, 
the intimacy that radio produces is is unbelievable. And you know that. And, and you have diehard listeners across the nation who, who you know, this is their time with, with, with Frank, you know. And, and you do develop this intimacy through the word, through the sounds. And we got to deal with some really serious topics. You know, uh, uh, Joe, obviously a rabbi Jewish, myself a Roman Catholic. We, we, we walked hand in hand with some issues on social justice. We dealt with issues of politics. We dealt with issues of education, of crime, of, of art, of, of humor. Um, it was really, truly a, a wonderful gift. And, and I thank the people of WABC for that opportunity. And I certainly thank uh, Joe Potasnik for letting me be his partner. And I got to be great people like Frank Morano. Well, <laughs> a lot greater than me, that's for sure. Uh, great people like Mike Civilli is more like it. But um, a great guy. Kevin, um, I've watched a lot of radio partnerships over the years. And uh, there are moments in every radio partnership where there's disagreements and where sometimes things get very tense. Sometimes it's an argument over topic selection or sometimes it's just a, an on-air argument argument about something that gets a little a little too carried away in 12 years of co-hosting a show even with someone as bright and as fun and with as great a sense of humor as rabbi joe has there had to have been at least one moment where things got a little heated between the two of you guys let us behind the curtain a little bit let us into at least one of those moments there would be times that, you know, we certainly we, we, we agreed on quite a bit. And, and the things that we disagreed, I'm not sure about dogma and things like that. That was, you know, that's something that's respected. Um, but here's the, the key, I guess, might have been more on me than on, on, on Rabbi Joe. And that Rabbi Joe was the main guy. I was I was the foil, you know, and I knew that. I mean, that was my place. Joe had been on the show forever. Uh, he, he started way back in the in the 80s. And the show had then a rabbi and a priest and an imam and a uh, Protestant minister. And then it evolved to... Uh, a priest, and then uh, after Father Keenan, I, I took over as the uh, Roman Catholic deacon. Um, there might be times, you know, where, where there might have been some petty jealousy on my part that, you know, uh, uh, Rabbi Joe spent a little too much time and didn't give me a, a shot. That was very rare, though, and and it probably had more to do with the fact that I didn't get a good night's sleep the night before than it had to do with, with anything with Rabbi Joe. So uh, I have to be honest, uh, you know, look, we also w- were together once a week. Mm. So uh, it's, it's different from, you know, if you have a, a program that's on four hours, five Every days day, a week, sure. Different ball that, that, that might tend to be a little quicker to happen. Um, but uh, I, I'll tell you, uh, Joe Potasnik was, uh, it still remains a good friend and was a wonderful, wonderful radio partner. And uh, I miss those days very much. Well, uh, that uh, so I miss them as a, a listener, that's for sure. All right, uh, let's talk a little bit about, before we get into your new role as the uh, superintendent of uh, the Catholic schools in Brooklyn, a lot of folks who, some may be Catholic, but we may have a lot of folks that are uh, are totally secular or at the very least not Catholic, and they may not even completely understand understand what a deacon is. What is a deacon versus a priest? What's the difference? That's a great question. So in, in the Roman Catholic Church, as well as in the Episcopal Church, in the Greek Orthodox Church, there are, are three levels of, of, uh, of, of service in, in the church, and, and uh, what we call it holy orders. So the boss is the bishop. He's, he's on top of uh, all that. In the Episcopal Church, it's, it could be a woman as well. Um, in, in, and then underneath the, the bishop is the uh, uh, priests, and the priests are the ones that are most commonly known uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, priests you know wear uh, you know the black shirt and the white collar, um, and they're uh, in the Roman Church uh, and in, uh, mainly in the Roman Church they're all celibate and uh, they live in rectories and they have you know they don't have families they they they, they dedicate completely there and they're involved in saying mass and hearing confessions. Um, 
as well as marrying and baptizing and things like that. The deacon is someone who uh, the majority of us are married. Uh, the majority of us live on, on our own. You know, we, I have my own home. Uh, I live in a, a neighborhood in, in Lindbergh, Long Island. Um, we, have, uh, we have children. Uh, we have other jobs that aren't related to the church. I'm, I'm an exception to that. Um, and we help out at Mass. We, we can preach on Sundays. We can baptize. We can marry. Uh, and we, we're basically helpers to the uh, to the priest and to the bishop to kind of bring the gospel out to uh, everyone we can. We have a foot in the in the uh, uh, you know the secular world. You know, the, 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 you know, I, I live next to you know cops and firemen and teachers mm. and, and nurses and stuff. And at the same time, we have a foot in the church. So um, we dress regular. I, I wear a suit and tie to work. I don't wear a Roman collar. And uh, but I'm very much involved in the church. And I, I love to preach, as you might imagine. Uh, uh, preaching is my favorite thing to do, and I get to do that most Sundays. Uh, no, that is absolutely terrific. Let me ask you about a trend that we've been observing in public schools around the country and including right here in New York. There has been a, this is a nationwide trend, a tremendous decline in public school enrollment, uh, really uh, beginning to drop precipitously uh, in 2020 with the pandemic and the lockdowns. Some people are saying in New York City alone, uh, the enrollment might be down as much as uh, 4.7%. And then this year, looks like the enrollment's down again. But this is not a New York trend. This is a trend that's going on all over the country. From what you're seeing, what's this all about? Why do you think we're seeing such a decline in public school enrollment? I, I, look, I want to clarify that I definitely have a, a bias sure. on, on this, and I come from a particular perch on the uh, on the social tree that I'm seeing this. But here's what I, I fear is happening. We, first of all, we have great, great teachers and administrators and staff members in public schools. We have people of all faiths and, and races and, 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 and economic backgrounds and, and you name it. So the, I, this is not to demonize the individuals, but they're asked to deal in a world that's devoid of, of, of meaning. And so when you take that away, when you take away the fact that everything goes, like there's no, there's no absolutes, there's no, um, there's no center, um, the discipline becomes a question. Uh, the, the, the issues of, of respect become in question. Um, the fact that we, 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 look, we are called to respect all, but it doesn't mean we tolerate all kinds of actions. You know, there are certain lines that can't be crossed. And there are certain needs for meaning, and, and religion is one of those, and that, they're not, we're not the only ones. And in the old days, public schools had that. Um, but I do believe it's, it's more and more of this uh, attempt to uh, be everything to everybody, allow everything at all times to be acceptable, and, and not challenge anything. And, and I do think people are, are, are tired of it. They're afraid of it. And so um, during the pandemic, the city lost uh, whatever it was, 3 or 4%. We didn't lose anything. You know, as a public school um, during COVID, uh, they, 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 their, strict, their restrictions were uh, uh, draconian, in my opinion. Uh, Catholic schools, we were open. You know, we kept our distance. The kid, we, we used the protocol. We weren't we weren't foolish about the about the virus. But at the same time, we didn't allow it to destroy us. And uh, our schools thrived during that time. And I think people recognize that they recognize the value added in a faith based school like like our Catholic school. And we've 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 grown accordingly. Myself, uh, Michael Deegan, and my my colleague in the, in the Archdiocese of New York, um, they had similar results. And I would imagine, you know, across the Eastern Seaboard, that that would be, or at least the Northeast, uh, our schools are very similar. Our communities are very similar. There was a, this 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 uh, example of give the people what they need, and they'll come to you. It's certainly an interesting thing to watch. The fact that you alluded to uh, all of the uh, pandemic 
lockdowns and the restrictions during the pandemic and how what you guys did in the Catholic schools, you weren't reckless, but you thought that it was important to uh, de- you know get back to some semblance of normal schooling. You, we saw uh, the public schools really delay much longer than the Catholic schools did in reopening. We also saw that even once public schools were reopened, there were a lot of restrictions when it came to, came to both teachers and students wearing masks, and we saw there were a lot of restrictions uh, in the part of uh, staff, at least, on, in terms of vaccines. Do you think that the uh, lack of COVID-era restrictions, including everything that I just mentioned, do you think that played a role in the exodus of students from public schools? And what sort of uptick that did that lead to in terms of Catholic school enrollment? We Well, I, I want to make it clear. Catholic schools uh, in New York City, that would be uh, and, and Long Island, uh, we're responsible to all the state mandates as far as health goes. Uh, so if the state required uh, everybody to wear masks, we wore masks. If they required everybody to get vaccines, we required that. But there were some loopholes. There were some religious exemptions that were, were given, and we certainly respected that for our teachers. Um, I think the fact that we saw COVID as, a, as an obstacle and not as a, a, a boulder of destruction that would prevent us from anything changed a lot. And the fact that we could pivot Look, my, my system is a lot smaller. The archdiocese is a lot smaller uh, than, 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 than the, the, the New York City school system. But we still have the ability, we still, we still teach you know, tens of thousands of kids. Uh, and we were able to pivot quicker. And to be honest, and this is something I'm really proud of, I, I, I'm sure it's true in, in New York. For those who, I know this is a national show. So in New York City, we have two dioceses we have to, and two organizations. So we have Brooklyn, Queens. And then we have the Archdiocese, which is uh, Staten Island, Manhattan, the Bronx, and then upstate uh, into Westchester and Orange. Um, I'm pretty sure that's as far as it goes. But uh, with that being said, we we, we were um, we were able to pivot. We were able to, to to get the kids in there, and we didn't have infections. So, like, kids didn't go home. We didn't have uh, in in my, at that time. I was at Severian High School in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I was the principal. We had no kids get COVID because they came to school. That's that to me means everything. And they got to be educated because I'll wow. tell you the the deficit that that's caused in our, our, our maturity level of our students across the board has been devastating. And I can only imagine what my colleagues in the public system are going through. Well, speaking of the public system, you know, we are seeing a lot of trends in the public system where uh, children are confused. Uh, children are uh, not up to a reading level that their peers of a generation ago were able to read at. And in some cases, they're dealing with things like depression, anxiety, alarming relates of, uh, rates of uh, drug use as well. Is that are those problems uh, prevalent in the Catholic schools as well, or is that something that the Catholic schools have been able to avoid? We look; it exists, and that's that's a human condition. And there's a lot of pain out there. However, the numbers that that, that my system deals with, that that the other Catholic schools in the area deal with, uh, systems, you know, uh, is, is extremely much, much, much less. I think for a couple of reasons. One is. There's a much bigger buy-in from the family in a Catholic school because a parent has to sacrifice to go there. We, we charge tuition. In, in, in my schools, we charge anywhere – for the grammar schools, we charge anywhere between four and, and $7,000 a year. And in the high schools, we charge anywhere from about nine, nine and a half to about $17,000. So there's a, there's a definite buy-in right there. You have, you have, you have uh, skin in the game, if you will. With that being said, we also have 
uh, a lot of support. And, and, and so, you know, people think Catholic schools don't have counselors. We do. We, they, they think we don't have access to, you know, the best uh, and, and, and the, the best practices in mental health. We do. Um, but we also have teachers that are, are, are involved and they have the ability Again, again, I'm not going to demonize my colleagues uh, in, in the public system. Sure. They're good, good people. But, but their hands are tied many times, and we can bring in a faith dimension when there's a struggle. We can bring in uh, a prayer, and not in some panaceic way that we, you know, we're going to pray over you and everything's going to be made whole, but we're going to, you know, it's the old Benjamin Franklin. We're going to roll like there is no God and pray like there is <laughs> and know that you know, somewhere in between we're going to find that solution. And, and uh, I uh, interrupted my own, your answer to my own question, which is about the uptick in Catholic school attendance. You know, not long ago, maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago, it seemed like every quarter we were seeing a different story about a Catholic school closing uh, because uh, they were not able to have enough students for that Catholic school. You don't see those stories anymore. And I know at least during the lockdowns, you saw a big uptick in attendance with Catholic schools. What are you seeing in Brooklyn in terms of increased Catholic school attendance, if anything? We, we, we're holding our own. We, we, so we, we didn't gain anything, but we didn't lose anything. And so I'm going to take that as a win, especially when you compare it to the public system. Um, the pandemic was, was, you know, those three years, uh, and we're, we're coming out of it now, um, everything was done to make sure that we could hold people together. There's still going to be closures. That's just mm. the reality. And, and neighborhoods change and, and demographics change. Um, so, you know, don't be surprised if you hear, uh, you know, closure coming out of, you know, the Brooklyn Diocese or the, the, the Archdiocese of New York or Philadelphia or, 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 or California or wherever you're listening from. I mean, those things are going to happen, but they're not going to happen in the numbers that we had seen in, in the times that you were talking about. Mm. A lot is in place, and, and we, 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 we work very hard to support, uh, we give tuition support. We work very hard to make sure that there's a lot of value added to our schools. So, you know, in the old days, you came to school, you went home, and you did your thing. Nowadays, families are demanding. What kind of club do you have? Do you, you know, sure. are my kids going to learn about STEM? Are they going to are they going to be a dance uh, a program for them? Is there a theater program? Is there, is there sports? And that used to be just a high school reality, but now across the board, even in the grammar schools, we want to see more value added, and they're doing it. And they're doing it, and they're doing it at fractions of the penny of what they're doing in the public system. So um, there is a lot of great good news, uh, you know, great good news about our, 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 our private and Catholic schools. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Deacon Kevin McCormick. He's the new superintendent of the schools of the Roman Catholic Diocese of uh, Brooklyn. Hey, uh, Kevin, can you stick around a few more minutes? I got to take one quick break, but if you don't mind, uh, a, a you know a late night slash early morning, I'd love to keep you here for a bit more. Frank, I'm on radio again. I love it. I'm, I'm with you the whole way. <laughs> All right, terrific. Hang on. Uh, we'll continue with Deacon Kevin McCormick in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about what trends we're seeing in terms of teachers. We've seen some very alarming uh, news stories over the course of the last year and a half about schools not being able to have enough teachers. What do Catholic schools do? to avoid such uh, pitfalls and what's happening with respect to the Catholic Church in general. Not that he's the Pope, but he's the closest that we're going to get to it on this radio program. Deacon Kevin McCormick will stick around with us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Lisa Marie Presley, Lights Out. Obviously, a lot of people still uh, talking about her untimely passing. A lot of people speculating that she might have had some sort of a hereditary heart condition that Elvis might have suffered from as well, as well as others. So uh, it's something I'd like to look into on a future program. But uh, we are uh, having a, a great time catching up with Deacon Kevin McCormick. He's the new superintendent of the schools of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. He was formerly the principal at Zaverian High School in Brooklyn. A lot of years of educational experience and quite a few years of experience here on the radio. By the way, Kevin, how are you enjoying... I realize maybe, uh, you know, this is an unfair question. How are you enjoying being the superintendent now? Uh, So many educators that I've talked to over the years who really enjoyed being in the classroom, sometimes they lament that so much of their role has become administrative and they don't get to spend as much time actually teaching students. How are you finding it? It's a trade-off. I had been at Severian for 37 years. They were wonderful years. I was a teacher. I was an administrator. I, I, I worked my way through the system. I became the principal. Um, and, and I was principal for 15 years with Mr. Robert Lisi. We, we, together, we really, we, we really did some great things at Severian, and it continues to be a wonderful, wonderful school. And I'm very, very, very uh, honored that I, I was part of, of its story. Um, but I, I got a new chance to do something different. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 60s, and I, I have a new dragon to slay, and, and there's a lot of work to be done. I don't have the intimacy with a classroom that I, I had as a younger teacher, but I, I do believe I have more influence. So, you know, I went from a class of 30 to a, to a school of, of 1,500 to a, to a system of uh, over 30,000 kids when you include our high schools and grammar schools. So it, it allows me to be involved in a lot of great things. I have a wonderful, wonderful bishop, Bishop Robert Brennan, who's uh, been in the uh, diocese for about a year. He asked me to come on. And uh, I love working with him and the priests and the teachers and the principals and the nuns and the brothers and, and, the, and my brother deacon. So there's a lot of great things going on. I'm, I'm thrilled, to be honest. I think there's uh, no state that has not been hit by the situation I'm about to describe, and that's a shortage in terms of uh, of teachers. And uh, I did this segment on the radio maybe about five or six months ago asking the question, why? Why are why is there a teacher exodus? Why are people pursuing careers other than teaching? And a lot of school districts are in some very desperate straits. They've been forced to call back retired teachers, uh, give uh, opportunities to teach to people that may not be qualified to teach. And I asked the listeners why. And the three most common areas that they came up with in terms of why people are abandoning the teaching profession had to do with compensation. And they felt the teachers were not adequately compensated. It had to do with underappreciation on the part of both uh, the school administration and parents and their students. And it had to do with the uh, lack of discipline, uh, to your point earlier, that uh, a lot of students were uh, dealing with at home, which then would play out in the classroom. Are you in the Catholic school system seeing a similar sort of a teacher exodus and why or why not? We do have – I don't think I have the problem that my, my colleagues in the, uh, in the New York City school system has. Uh, but I do have – I mean, it is a concern. You have a concern of, of your people choosing education. At a time, that was a noble – when I was a, a young teacher, you know, we're talking almost 40 years ago, it was a noble profession. If you, if you said you were a teacher, it had a certain cachet to it. People knew that you were, you were taking a, a, a discount on, on your salary, but you, you bought into the mission of your program. 
we still have that mission in the schools, and, 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 and many of our faculty are attracted to it because they're working with kids in a, in, a, in a unique reality that allows them to express their faith, to allows them to bring their kids to the next level, and, and give them the ability to have that, that Catholic imagination as they go into the world. But at the same time, in, in our schools, we're, we're working on, on um, you know, a, a significant percentage less than, than the, the New York City dollar. So, you know, our people may be making 60 or 70 percent to the New York dollar. And uh, that's a problem. Um, the other thing is, uh, you know, they say unemployment is at its lowest ever. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'd love to know what jobs they're taking because uh, education is not a primary job anymore. And, and it, it's it's uh, we see. Even in our colleges and our universities, uh, the education program is not what it what it was. It's numbers and, and its resources that it had been. And that's not true in all colleges, obviously, or universities, but we see a trend there. Um, so there is a thing. I, I do think we need to kind of recapture the imagination of our young college uh, students and, and saying that education is is really an outstanding profession to be involved in for the rest of your life. Or for a good significant portion of your life, and so there is need to do that. As far as discipline in a school, that's really the the, the work of the administrators of that building to set the tone to mm. say this behavior is acceptable, this is not, and you need the support of your of your teachers, of your principals. I'm sorry, and of the uh, of the administrators, uh, you know, outside of the school, like the superintendent's office. Um, that we do have in the Catholic school. You know, there, there is there is behavior that's not acceptable. You know, you you can't hit people, you can't steal things you can't be uh, uh, verbally uh, 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 oppressive to someone you can't you can't make fun of someone because of the way they look or they act or or, or, or the way they live and things like that and that's that's strictly tolerated and not tolerated I mean it's something that that you know we've called people out I've I've over my career in Severian I had to uh I had to expel you know mm. scores of kids it's not easy but it certainly makes a better school it's not for everybody and you need to earn your place in it it's not just given to you you have to earn it Obviously, I realize you may have a, a vested interest in, in this question, but as somebody that's been in the educational system for four decades, I'll ask you anyway, what's your take on uh, school vouchers? Proponents of school vouchers say this gives uh, students and parents the opportunity to go to school um, you know, as an alternative to schools that, uh, they, uh, that might not be performing and uh, they might not have otherwise had the means to go to uh, an alternative school. The opponents of school vouchers say that this is a drain of resources and money from the public school system at a time when the public schools can least afford to have that money drained. Do you have a strong opinion on the question of school yeah, vouchers? I, as you might suspect, brother, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, I look at my parents, and, and my parents are, are working-class heroes. You know, these, these are not uh, elitists. These are uh, these are people who are working in hospitals, and they're working uh, on the streets of New York as uh, as our, our, our first responders, there are people who are working in offices. There, there, this is not the uh, the elite uh, that you might find in an Upper West Side school. And 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 kudos to them, but that's not who I work with. Um, why don't they have the ability to to give a, a choice on wh- how they want their kids educated? Assuming assuming that the schools are are are, are state recognized, that they do in fact teach what what's expected from a kid and we do that you know we're the new york city we we, we cooperate with new york city's uh, uh, department of ed and new york state's department of ed in our high schools they take the regents etc like that so 
why, why, why won't we allow people to do that? And, and why are we afraid to say that a faith-based school can't get money? You know, that, that for some reason, because I mentioned God in my work, and I make, no, I make no bones about it. When you walk in, you see all the, the Catholic identity aspects, the crucifix and the, and the saints and things like that. But look at the quality of what, what's coming out of our Catholic schools throughout the nation, throughout the nation. Well, and, I mean, I, that, I guess I, the, the other side of that is people would say that uh, that uh, Catholic schools or religious edu- educational institutions do get money, but it's for things like textbooks and to get uh, uh, their school students transported to school and things like that. I mean, there is public funding that is involved in the educational in York, process, right? In New York State, there is. In, in a state like Maryland, I uh, see. they don't. They don't. They don't get those things. So I see. each state, each state is going to be very different, just like vouchers. So I, I know, for instance, in Ohio, there are vouchers uh, in New York. There aren't. And I don't see unfortunately, I don't see vouchers in New York state anytime in the near future. But I do think it would be fair to the taxpayer who has money that's, to, to give them some discretionary fund and say, look, we're going to we're going to give you a, a voucher of X amount of dollars, whatever it is. And you could put that towards a charter school or you could put that to a Catholic school. Um, I'm very proud. And again, my colleagues throughout the nation, um, our kids respond. Our kids are going on to the best high schools. Our, our high school college kids, uh, our, I'm sorry, our high school Catholic kids are, are 99% going into uh, the colleges of their choice, or they're going into the military, or they're going into a family business. Uh, but our kids are succeeding, and they go on to the best universities, and they go on to make the best uh, uh, people in, involved. They're changing our, our world in a positive sense. Uh, I would put my results up, and when I say mine, I mean the Catholic school results across the nation. I'll put my results against any other system with the type of kid we come from, with the economic background that are coming into our schools. Tell me how you're doing with the same kids. Mm. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to beat you nine out of ten times. Uh, uh, this question might be above your pay grade, and if, but you're the only person I have to ask, so uh, tough. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Deacon Kevin McCormick. There was a headline in the Guardian newspaper yesterday which caught my attention because I know I knew that this was a trend and it's something that we had talked about on the radio, but I had no idea that it was this bad. Here was the headline in the Guardian. Losing their religion, why U.S. churches are on the decline. And then the news article says... As the U.S. adjusts to an increasingly non-religious population, thousands of churches are closing each year, probably accelerated by COVID. I had, uh, you know, I had an idea that we weren't at the same level of religiosity that we were in the 1950s, but I had no idea of the rapid pace at which uh, churches are are closing at. What is your take on this, and what can be done, not just by the Catholic Church, but for all the organized religions to kind of stem the tide of people staying home instead of going to church? It's a frightening uh, uh, trend. We, we call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and the uh, the nuns are growing in, uh, in in number. And they did when Joe and I, Rabbi Joe and I, were on the show. We used to talk about this on, sure. on, on several occasions. Um, people have lost the, their faith, in, no, no pun intended, uh, but they've lost their faith in organized religion in many ways. And that can be done. One is, look, everything closed during those, especially those first few months of COVID, and people got used to not going to church. Um, I think I think there is a challenge here, and we can say, woe is us, COVID happened, but it happened. Now, what is our response? And I do think that the churches, uh, you know, whatever organized religion you are, we now have a responsibility to remind people what we offer. And, and, and look, you know, some people find this to be very vulgar. I don't. 
I think we have to sell our product. And I don't mean the way, uh, you know, on, on an infomercial, but I do mean it means remind people what, what is the value added to, and that's a question that people ask in our generation now, in, in you know, 2023, what's the value added of being involved in your program? Is it, is it strictly tradition? For some, that's going to be enough. Is it going to be a, a relationship with the divine? That's going to be very important. Is it, is, it, is it a combination of all those things? It's a place of solace, a place of hope, uh, all these things. But we have to work harder to invite people back and, and, and you know, literally go to the highways and byways and say, look, this is not the French Revolution. You know what I mean? This is not uh, the bubonic plague. And the church survived things like that. This we can get over, but we, we have to work harder. And, and that means we have to go and meet the people where they're at. We have to be true to our foundation, to our, our, our dogmas, to our beliefs, and, 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 and let, let them meet us for who we are. Uh, but it means work on our part. You know, we can't, we can't blame the people for not coming and not do anything about it. You know, that's, uh, that, that's, you know, that's rearranging deck, charts, deck chairs on the Titanic. We need to go out and, and, and evangelize. Can I just go on a riff for 30 seconds? Please, right? go ahead, yeah. When, when I was a kid, you know, I was a kid in 1960. I was born in 1960. So um, when, when, I was, when I was getting ready for school, there was no question in, in my parents' mind that I would go to Our Lady Mercy in the Bronx. There was no question on it. It wasn't like, should we, what, what are they, you went. I lived in a world of privileged Christianity, and, and particularly in New York City, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, um, there was a privilege that you had to be a Catholic, and the world kind of world revolved around it. And you had, you know, Archbishop Sheehan and, 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 and going my way and, and a whole bunch of things that went with that. Well, now in, in 2023, Christendom is gone. You know, that, 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 that privilege that, that the Catholic Church or any other church had in, you know, say, uh, you know, from the, from the 20s to the 70s in, in the 20th century, it's gone. We have to evangelize. We can't rest on our laurels. We have to go out and tell people what the good news is. Uh, lastly, um, when Pope Benedict uh, passed away, I got a call from one priest who said that he thought that when the history of the popes was written, that Pope Benedict would go down as one of the most influential uh, Catholic scholars and uh, thinkers in the 20th or 21st century. I'm curious, where do you think, as somebody that was on the radio under both Pope Benedict and uh, Pope Francis, where do you think Pope Benedict falls in terms of his legacy going forward? Pope Benedict, as, as Joseph Ratzinger, uh, uh, was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant theologian. As, as Pope, he was a, a, a real trendsetter Pope. He, if you were going to look at the history of the Church, he certainly continues in the, in the tradition of John Paul II. Um, he was older when he got the job. The, the church is very interesting with its popes. We tend to, 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 to go like a TikTok, you know, so there's, uh, you know, we go to the, to, to the more progressive, we go to the more traditional, we go more to the president, and that goes back and forth. And that's, that's pretty much a trend. Um, Pope Benedict, he continued many of the uh, uh, trends that, that St. John Paul II did, and he did so with, with uh, uh, love and caring. Um, you have to remember, all our popes are, are bound by who they are. So he's he's a German who was very much influenced by the horrors of, of the Nazi mm-hmm. regime, and he knew the importance of, of tradition, and he was willing to do that. He also gave the church the gift of saying that a pope can, can step down. We have people, pope lived till he's 95, uh, he was in his 90s when, when, when he passed. Um, he gave the church the gift of saying, you know what, the, being a pope is essentially important, 
but it's a, it's it's a job that that you you need certain qualities for, and and the gift that John, Benedict gave us was the ability to say, I'm going to step down, I'm going to support my 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 successor, and and he did very much. He Benedict is going to go down as, as as a very important pope, no question about it. Very important pope. Kevin, I could talk with you all day. You got to come back soon. Uh, next time we're going to get you uh, in studio for old time's sake. I, I appreciate I the time like this morning. It's uh, been great talking to you. Thank you, brother. I'm going to hold you to it. I want to see you. Anytime, anytime. It's always a treat to talk with you. Deacon Kevin McCormick, the superintendent of of the schools of the Roman Catholic Diocese in Brooklyn. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know, I don't think I've ever heard this song before. It's called uh, We've Got a Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, by the way, uh, just join our Facebook group. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, I asked Matt why I wanted to play this. And um, he said, you know, I don't know. But sure enough, I went back and checked my records. And I take pride in the fact that I did this all in 20 seconds just now, less than 20 seconds. And I found that uh, this was one of the song selections from uh, Kristen Buttle whose birthday it was eight years ago, a distinguished attorney from the Commonwealth of uh, Pennsylvania who works with my cousin Andrea. She happens to be a friend of um, my cousin Andrea as well, and we let her pick all the bumper music, but this is one that we didn't get approval from uh, approval to play in time, so we're playing it now, and I'm glad we are because I actually am really into it. I don't know that I've ever heard it before. All right, 800-848-9222. A lot to get to uh, between now and the end of the program. Uh, My thanks to Kevin McCormick and to uh, Steve Cates. But it is nice. No more guests for the rest of the show, which is nice in that it gives you and I a a chance to chat a little bit. And if you want to comment on any of the issues that we've touched upon so far, you can. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you what my whole day has been consumed with is is email. 
is catching up on my email, and I am still not caught up. And, you know, you talk about uh, anxiety. Uh, honestly, I feel like I'm running on a treadmill trying to g- answer all my emails. And yet, um, Rachel, my wife Rachel, will say to me, don't you think you're signed up to too many email newsletters? And I've not unsubscribed from any, and she's, of course, right, but I've not unsubscribed from any of them because I'm terrified about missing something that's in the news. And it, sure, it takes me the whole day, but it all, and it all goes to the same place. So I could get an email from my boss, and then that is in the same notification as if I get uh, a news digest from the newspaper The Hill, right? I could get uh, an email from a listener, and that shows up the same way in my email indicators as if it's, um, I don't know, uh, uh, an inv- just a piece of spam, basically. So um, – I got a little bit of a late start on my email yesterday because we had a late meeting here and I didn't get home until a little later than uh, than usual. But uh, if you want to email me and add to the clutter, uh, you can do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Just know that uh, it may take me a little while to get back to you. But one email I did get yesterday and I don't know if anybody got back to me on this because I'm not caught up in my email. I'm only 30 emails away from being caught up. But I got an email uh, from a journalist in Canada who uh, I had had some dealings with years ago, and he invited me next month on a press trip to the nation of Azerbaijan. And uh, I don't know, uh, the organizers of this trip are the Georgian Jewish community. And this fellow recommended me as someone that could go on it. Honestly, I think it would be a lot of fun to go. I think it would be really interesting to go. I'm not a big traveler, but this strikes me as a very unique, um, I know people hate that when I use the term very unique, but it strikes me as a unique opportunity. How many times um, do you have the opportunity to go to Azerbaijan? Now, it's not the easiest thing for me to go away and leave my wife and my son home without me. Um, and it's also uh, a logistical difficulty for the radio station. So I don't know logistically if it's going to work out, uh, both for personal reasons and for professional reasons, but I did write to the folks at the radio network and ask them their opinion about this to see if they thought there was any value to me going to Azerbaijan and broadcasting from there. I'm really intrigued. I'm really interested in going. So I'm, I may send, if no one has written back to me, I may send a follow-up email on this uh, yeah, tomorrow or today. But uh, my wife was very lukewarm when I broached the idea with her. So if I don't go, maybe we'll maybe we'll send someone else uh, to go. Maybe we'll send uh, Alex Barnard to go. By the way, day three, Alex Barnard still not here, still yes, out sick. I mean, this is alarming at this point. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think I know? <laughs> Matt, do we know anything um, in all seriousness about the, the medical status of Alex Barnard? All I know is he said he felt worse today. That's all I know. What is his I condition? I get text. Uh, he said that he was sneezing a lot the other day and his throat was killing him. That was the first day. And then today he said he was worse. Has he had a flu test or a COVID test or something? I, I would at think this point, so at this point. Three, three days, days of missed work. I would think you know he should be getting a test for the bubonic plague. 
Yeah, I mean, I have no idea. I really don't know. Three days means you're pretty sick. No, you know the last I, time I've taken three days, three sick days off. Yeah, when? N- never. <laughs> I'm talking. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying that he should be uh, rushing back to work if he's not feeling well. We certainly don't want that. But I'm saying the guy must be pretty sick um, if uh, if that's the case. What is that shirt you're wearing? A dolly? It's, it's a, a Dolly Parton shirt. Oh, it's Dolly Parton. It doesn't look like Dolly Parton. It's it's, it's young Dolly Parton. Uh, well, it doesn't even look like <laughs> young Dolly Parton. Uh, I could see it now. I didn't know you were a Dolly Parton fan. You know what? I see a rock T-shirt, and since Dolly is now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear a Dolly Parton shirt. Why I'm, not? Well, good for you. Hey, so how has it been in terms of doing the darker side of Midnight Podcast without Alex Barnard? I saw yesterday you were taping with uh, Christian Matos. Who's Christian been... Matos has stepped into Alex Barnard's position, and if Alex Barnard doesn't come back soon, he will have a permanent position, Oh, uh, yeah. I think. So Alex Barnard could be like Wally Pip, and that's it. And Christian could be Lou Gehrig. He's sidelined. That's Very what happened. Remember when uh, what Drew Bledsoe went out and Tom Brady stepped in? Yeah. Well, again, I think my analogy of uh, Wally Pip and Lou Gehrig was you know a little bit a little bit more pronounced, even though historically you know maybe more has been made of the Wally Pip situation than was reality. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Curious if you think I should go to Azerbaijan or not. Let me know what you think, 800-848-9222. Be sure to join our Facebook group, um, especially if you're not a uh, someone that likes to post off-topic. I don't even mind criticism. You can be as critical as you want as long as it's on topic. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Oh, the other area that I'm behind in is SMS text messages. I, I, I just looked at my phone. There I have 78 SMS text messages. 78. Now, I, I don't know. I, I'm not that popular of a person that I could have 78 SMS text messages. I just saw one suggesting a, a question that I should have asked Deacon McCormick. I wish I would have seen that sooner. So my apologies to uh, Vinny LaVienne, who sent that over. All right. Pamela in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Oh, hello. Um, uh, I uh, taught um, public schools, and now and again, I would get a transfer from a Catholic school. And um, I found that they were very disciplined in the basics, you know, uh, reading, grammar, writing. Uh, we we worked on uh, thinking a little more outside of the box, but that can always be handled once the basics are there. I think in the public school, there's too much interference from the state and politics and nonsense. Where in the um, I even thought about teaching in those schools, but you know the the money was is definitely an issue. I mean, if you're working when you first start teaching in public school at the poverty level, when I taught. Um, you're, you'll be under the poverty level in a private school, but um, anyway, um, but the, but it was wonderful. They had a whole different attitude, and um, and even behavior-wise, you know, obviously many times they were, um, uh, you know, a little calmer, and uh, but then you could start to see the influence of the public school, and you know, fine, a mixture of the both. But I found the schools to be very good at teaching. The basics, and that was enjoyable as a teacher to to uh, to see that you know the difference. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Pamela. Uh, thank you, and and that jives with what I've heard from a lot of students and parents as well. And I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on the public schools at all. I'm not. I, I'm a believer 
in public schools, both uh, myself and my three siblings, all of us went to uh, public schools for the entirety of our academic career until we were in college. And I would venture, look, my brother's a scientist. My other brother is a musician with a master's degree. Um, and my sister is a uh, graduate of uh, George Washington and uh, doing very well with a medical startup. So I think that, uh, you know, we've all we all got a very good education in the public school system. But uh, it's also I- important to see the great job that uh, that the Catholic schools are doing as well. Janet is on Long Island. Hello, Janet. Yes, she is. Hi, Frank Morado. Hi. It's my first time calling. Oh, welcome. I, I, I usually try to text you and give you my feelings. But today, um, something changed. I was listening to Rita Cosby and to Dominic Carter. And they're very disturbed and wanting to know how to stop the nonsense that's going on in our country. With people being killed, teenagers not caring setting a man's hair on fire, and when the newscaster came in to save him, they worked on him. And thank God the old man got away. But then you had your show with the deacons, and everything that was said was the complete solution to what is going on in this country at this point. When I was younger, If our parents could afford it, they made sure we went to Catholic school. Why was that? Because there were a lot of religious ceremonies and morals that were taught. And now, after a few years in public school, they took God out of school. What do they think is going to happen when they do that? Well, look, I mean, I think a lot of people are saying the same thing uh, as you are, Janet. What I wish, because a lot of secular folks, uh, they hear terms like God and uh, religion, and they immediately uh, get a little bit um, uh, gun-shy and uh, almost close their ears to any furtherance of the conversation. But what I – and this is one of the reasons I was eager to have uh, Deacon McCormick on is because – No, no, it certainly is. But I hope – I would love to see the public school whether it's relation to discipline, whether it's relation to respect, whether it's the curriculum. I would love to see some of the public schools take a page from the Catholic schools a little bit and emulate some of the things that they're doing well, which could also work in public schools to deal with some of the problems that we're that we're talking about here. Jenna, thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it very much. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Um, you know, it was <laughs> – I, I was wondering whether I should get into this whole M&M situation. Well, maybe we'll do this next hour. I was on the fence because uh, – in terms of what to talk about next hour because there's like f- five major things that I want to talk about, right? And I'm only going to have time for, for two. And I got to tell you, this M&M situation has got to be the stupidest thing in the world. If you haven't heard about this, you can say goodbye. And I'm sorry I didn't have a chance to pull audio, but I've been spending the entire day preparing for interviews and, and reading email. Um, you could say goodbye to both the sexy green M&M 
and also her feminist sneaker-wearing counterpart, Mars Wrigley, uh, the maker of these colorful chocolate candies. And the reason I guess this hits home with me is because I enjoy the peanut M&Ms, eating them, but I also enjoyed these Spokes candies and these M&M commercials. They've pulled the M&M Spokes candies mascots indefinitely from its marketing and branding. Instead, M&Ms will be represented by the real-life comedian and actress Maya Rudolph. Now, this news comes after a rebranding to make the characters more inclusive and the subsequent fallout from some conservative pundits like Fox News Channel's Tucker Carlson, who I am a fan of. And the the statement tweeted from the official M&M's account reads, In the last year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice, and we we definitely didn't think it would break the Internet, but now we get it. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing. I have to say, I, I, I can't bring myself to care about this. I think this is the the least important story in the world. And yet, over the last 48 hours, I've been deluged with emails, headline after headline, social media feed is all people commenting on this, ready to go to war over the M&M. I really, I, I, I find this astounding that this many people care who the M&M mascot is. I mean, maybe I'm lost without the same sense of nostalgia. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You know, it's interesting. I've always been fascinated. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I've always been fascinated by photographs and history, the role that photographs have played in history, and the history being captured in the form of photographs. For instance, um, you you know, to this day, uh, two people that I've been thinking a great deal about The most requested photo in the National Archives is Elvis Presley meeting Richard Nixon. And uh, I've been thinking about both of them because uh, I always look at whose birthday it is. And both of them, Nixon and Elvis, happen to have January birthdays. And it's a great photo just to see the two of them at it like that, uh, meeting one another. And there's some great stories about how that occurred. And I've been thinking a lot about that meeting because do you know who greeted Elvis when uh, Elvis came to the White House to meet Nixon? But it was Shelley, uh, the the person that now goes by the name of Shelley Buchanan, the wife of uh, Pat Buchanan. And um, originally, I think back then she was Shelley Scarney. But she worked for Nixon, and that's where she met her husband, Pat Buchanan, who also worked for Nixon. I've been thinking about Pat Buchanan a lot as well because of his uh, announcement yesterday that he's going to be retiring as a columnist, putting an end to a more than 50-year career as a columnist. But we'll come back to that later if time permits. But 
I got I'm on uh, two group text messages. One is my father, my stepmother, my wife, my siblings, and my uh, and two of my siblings in law. And my stepmother was visiting her nephew, who actually she believes, based on the results of a DNA test, she actually believes that the person who she always thought was her nephew was actually her cousin, because she's now come to believe that her brother, the person she always grew up believing was her older brother, is actually her uncle. We don't know for sure if that's true, because her brother, who recently passed away, refused to take a DNA test before passing away. Man after my own heart. I love it. But she was visiting her uh, her nephew, and her nephew had some of her father's, uh, his father's belongings. And she came across a photo, and, uh, and she sent it to our little group text there. And she came across a photo of her mother, who's my sibling's grandmother, with Babe Ruth. I mean, think about that. It's a photo of my stepmother's mother with Babe Ruth from, I think it was the 1940s. And it's a wild thing to behold. It's it's a quite a sight to look at. She was a young girl at the time. And she looks a lot like my, uh, my stepmother's uh, sister, who also unfortunately passed away. And that was interesting. And seeing kind of a cool black and white grainy photo with Babe Ruth, that was interesting. But at the same time, my friend Danielle, who listens to this show all the time, she and her husband Rich, who are good friends of my wife and I, my wife and me, they, uh, she found a photo of her grandmother, and this is an incredible photo. She knew that her grandmother was one of the early female Marines, the women Marines in back in the 1940s. And so she sends me a message that in 1942, her grandmother was in the first female class of the Marine Reserves for which she was 100 there to be uh she wanted she was going to be their poster child i guess she was very attractive and based on this photograph that i saw of her she looked very attractive and she was always sent on these photo shoots and she was even in time magazine posing once with the liberty bell so in 1944 she had to do a photo shoot with frank sinatra and he asked her to go out with him for dinner frank sinatra and then lo and behold she told him that she had a hen party with the other female Marines and they were not going to make an exception even for him. So the next morning, he sent her to uh, he sent to her a hotel room flowers, a fruit basket and a note about how he was sorry to miss the party. So in 1984, 40 years after this, my friend Danielle's uncle was able to get Sinatra to sign a copy of that original photo for her. And it was really interesting, and it got me thinking all day today about photographs and history and how history documents photographs and how photographs play a role in history, meaning how photos document history and how photos play also a role in history. And I thought about my own grandmother, and my own grandmother used to tell me how in her, in her house— they always had a photograph who – my grandmother was born – my paternal grandmother was born here in the United States. But she was you know, the daughter of immigrants. And she told me how in her house they would always have a photograph of whomever the president was, even if it was someone that they didn't like. And they had the president's photo right up there framed on their wall. And so I did a little research. 
And apparently, this was a very common thing. And I remember studying this in school. And what my uh, teacher at New York University had said was the reason that um, people stopped having photographs of presidents on their wall in their home was because now we were in an era where people watched their presidents on television. And so you didn't need to have a photo of the president on the wall. Well, if you visit a federal building today, you still see a photo of the president. And so I was thinking, look, I I didn't vote for President Biden, right? But I was thinking that maybe... If we got back to an era where Americans, and you're going to think I'm crazy, but just bear with me, but where Americans would keep a photograph of whomever the president was on their wall, whether it was someone they liked, someone they didn't like, someone they voted for, someone they didn't vote for, maybe we would get to a place where people would be a little bit more respectful of whoever the occupant of the Oval Office is And they'd be a little bit more respectful of their fellow man who might have voted for someone who they didn't happen to like. And I'm curious, what do you think of that idea? And then I got to thinking, if you visit a city building, you see not just a photo of the president, not just a photo of the governor, but you see a photo of the mayor. And I was thinking, what about that? I was thinking actually yesterday as I was listening um, to the Cats at Night show, because they had a guy that represents me on the show, I said, we should have a wall in our house with the president's photo, the governor, the mayor, and the borough president. And I think it would be such a nice thing for my son to see that these are people that should be respected, whether you agree with them or not, whether you vote for them or not, and the people that voted for these folks should be respected. And I'm curious where you come down on this. One... I'm curious if you ever did this in your house, even when you were a child, had a photo of whomever the president happened to be, and when that stopped, if you did, 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, and two, what do you think of my idea of putting a photo of the president, whoever it happens to be, up in your home in a place of respect? I'm not talking about putting it on a dartboard so that if you don't like Donald Trump, you can throw darts at Donald Trump. Or if you don't like Joe Biden, you can draw a little Hitler mustache on Joe Biden. No, I'm saying a place of respect for everybody in the household to see and for all your visitors to see that you respect the office of the presidency. And more importantly, you respect the voters that put him there. In your view, does that idea have any merit? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Um, I, 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 the more I thought about it, the more I like the idea, honestly. 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Meanwhile, let me say hello to Deanne in Westchester. Hello, Deanne. Hello, Frank. How nice to hear your voice in the evening. I have two things to say now. The first one, since this is your topic, a picture of Joe Biden on my wall. That is probably one of the most onerous things that I could do. This man is destroying our country. And to 
honor him with a place on my wall? Ah, it is disgusting to me. Well, Deanne, so the idea is not to so much honor Joe Biden, but it's to honor the office of the presidency and the country that he represents, even if you despise I, I, his I'm politics. Sorry. Joe Biden has sullied our country, and uh, there's no honor in in him. I would never have his picture on my wall. Yeah, can you do me a favor? Can you turn off your radio, please? We'll, yes, we'll come back like to you, okay? Uh, we'll come back to you in a second. Peter is in Manhattan. Hello there, uh, Peter. What's on your... Uh, well, I'm not get, being able to get Peter. Peter, what's on your mind? Peter? Do we have you? All right. Well, uh, Peter, we'll call back then. We'll try again to go to Deanne. Deanne, I'm sorry. We got you back now? Yes, you do. Okay, Now, the other topic I wanted to talk about was about the the issue of this no bail that is is really uh, destroying what's going on in the big cities. And I don't understand why these people who have been um, brought in who are uh, uh, doing misdemeanors and other things, why can't they have placed on their ankle one of those um, detectors? Well, usually and, you wouldn't get that for a misdemeanor. Usually that's well, mostly well, okay. for a felony arrest. Okay, a felony. Let's say a felony, and they just let them go. Why can't they let them go with one of those ankle detectors. My daughter has, well, we have two grandgirls, and they are in constant contact with their telephones. My daughter knows where those girls are. One is in Georgia, the other in Montauk. She knows where they are at every moment and can monitor that. And it seems to me that instead of putting these people in jail, put an ankle brace. Deanne, I think that's a fine idea. I think, um, you know, the the other idea, which is a lot simpler and far less expensive, is just to, as Governor Hochul has proposed, give the judges discretion back in terms of uh, letting them uh, determine whether or not people are a flight risk or whether there's some danger in keeping these folks out on the uh, out on the street. But I like your idea, actually, in the if, if that strikes me as maybe the great compromise a way for people to um, not make people stay in jail if they can't afford bail, but also to know where people are. I actually like that idea. I'm surprised I haven't heard it more from both progressives and um, and hardliners. Because if you think about it, and I forget who proposed this recently, um, some version of this maybe four years ago when the bail reform debate first started. Almost everybody has a mobile phone. It might have been, um, oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. But um, almost everybody has a mobile phone. And um, if you think about it, she's right. They have this tracking software on your mobile phone where you can know. I know husbands and wives that track each other. I know uh, children that are tracked by their parents based on the mobile phone. What if, as a condition for this no-bail situation, you have to have a tracking software on your mobile phone? Because I guarantee you, almost all of them have a mobile phone. And if the choice is have a mobile phone, 
um, or go to jail, you can bet they'll pick have a mobile phone with that tracking software. So I think that um, that idea deserves, I think, more exploration. And I will with some real experts. I'm not an expert and I don't pretend to be. 800-848-9222. What do you think of my idea? That irrespective, or as I like to say from time to time, don't get upset, irregardless, what do you think of the idea of keeping a president, whoever the president happens to be, whatever party, whatever your feelings about him, on your wall? I'm going to suggest this to my wife later today if she happens not to be listening because I think it would be so important for our son to grow up with a sense of respect for the presidency and for the people that elected the president, whoever happens, whoever it happens to be. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Al is in Mayapak. Hello, Al. Hello, Frank. Hello, Frank. Hey, Al, what's on your mind, pal? Um, you, have to, you mentioned something about uh, the president of the United States. I'm a, I'm a, a veteran from the... Uh, Vietnam War. I didn't go overseas, but I did uh, serve. And uh, a good thing is to go on an honor flight to honor the people who did serve, whether you went over or not. More importantly, every time I walk into the VA, there's the president of the United States on that wall. Well, thanks every for your service, number one. Every single federal administration has that. Right. I've noticed that. Um, so what do you think about doing that in people's homes? That same... The, you you, you like the idea. idea. That's wow. an idea. Now, uh, do you if and if you don't want to say that's fine, but do you have a strong political belief system one way or another, conservative, liberal, whatever? Absolutely. What are you? When I when I had when I saw Obama's picture on the wall, I was so happy to see Donald Trump and <laughs> when he was off and said when he was off the wall. So you're conservative, right? You're conservative. Yes. It's, it's fair to say. So but yes. you still think this is a decent idea of uh, having people put a president's picture up on their wall at home, even if it happens to be a Democrat. Absolutely. All right. Well, Al, I, uh, I think you and I uh, maybe we'll get started on a trend on this uh, on this One subject. More thing. Yeah. One more thing, Frank, if sure. I may, take cell phones and turn them off. Don't have kids go to bed with cell phones on. I had my my niece living here with two daughters, and that's all they did was she's my daughter has a hard time sleeping. She's take the phone, shut it off. I have a friend of mine in uh, Pennsylvania. No one uses phones at his 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 table. His wife cooked a meal. You got a phone, pulls over, picks it up, and shuts it off, and that's it. You respect what what's there right in front of you. That's the problem with this world. Well, you know what? I think that's a great idea, Al. And the, the, we've seen very convincing research about uh, the disruptive role that mobile phones can play in terms of disrupting right. sleep. But there right. is a, a a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist and a New York Times bestselling author uh, and really a pioneer in the field of neuroplasticity. And he's written mm-hmm. a couple of books that I've read. And he is actually of the belief that part of the reason, and this is very controversial, but part of the reason that so many young people develop uh, autism today is because of what he calls a noisy brain and the the constant bombardment of electronics that uh, their brains are always exposed to as a young age. And, and I'm not doing justice to his argument, but he believes that electronic 
devices, including mobile phones, might actually play a role in terms of uh, stimulating some sense, uh, some something in people's brains that has to do with with autism. I've tried to get him on the show to talk about it, but I haven't had any luck. So I agree with that completely. Actually, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. So that's one person that agreed with me. I got to tell you, that's one more than I thought. <laughs> Which is fine with me because I have no problem being the guy that brings everybody together. And this is, I think, a subject that both conservatives and liberals uh, would view asconce at. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll try again with Peter in Manhattan. Hello, Peter. Yes, uh, Frank, I enjoyed the interview with the guy from Religion on, on the line. Thank you. Of, but I wanted to say that I would have liked to have heard, heard him speak about the fact that when the bad Catholic school students hit the ninth grade, they kick them out and send them to public school. So that, And another thing I would like to know or have had commented on was the fact that because the Catholic Church, the Catholic schools and the Catholic Church was doing so poorly a few years ago, charter school helped bring back the, the spirit of the Catholic Church. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And and again, we, you know, I wanted to touch up on a bunch of different areas, but but I think um, you know, some people have theorized and thanks for the call Peter that charter schools actually played a role in hastening the demise of Catholic schools. And I realize that may seem counterintuitive to people, but some people have said and I, again, this was beyond the scope of the interview that I just did, but um some people have said that the parents that used to find a way to send their children to Catholic schools because of some of the issues that we talked about, discipline and uh, violence and all sorts of other things, they instead now sent them to charter schools to escape those same public school problems. And they could send the kid to a charter school, public charter school for free, whereas they had to spend money to send them to a Catholic school. So I'm sorry we didn't get into that, but uh, look, Kevin said he'd come back, and I will put that on the list of uh, subjects that we get into in the future. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. So this is a phenomenal song. This is actually one of my favorites. It's called The Black Superman. It's by uh, Johnny Wakeland. It's all about Muhammad Ali, as you could hear. 
And um, it was Muhammad Ali's birthday on January 17th, so I had uh, tried to play it on that day, but we weren't able to uh, get it played in time. However, I will tell you that Rashida Ali, um, the daughter, one of the daughters of Muhammad Ali, not the most famous uh, fighter, Layla Ali, it is her birthday in two days, so it still strikes me as... uh, you know, first of all, I'll look for any opportunity to play this song. I love this song. It's so catchy. This is one of those songs that if you listen to the chorus, you will find yourself singing it all day long. All right, 800-848-9222. There was a time, and I think this ended around 1960-ish, where people, where Americans had a portrait of whomever the president happened to be in their homes. I am proposing that we bring this back. As a country, not any sort of mandate, but just on an individual basis. And uh, I am going to try to do this in our house is put up a photo of the president, just a a headshot of the president, whoever it happens to be. And if Trump comes back to be the president, his photo will be up there. And if it's uh, Pete Buttigieg or, um, uh, you know, Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Gavin Newsom or Ron DeSantis, whoever the next president happens to be, will do the same thing. And there'll always be, maybe above our fireplace, uh, a, a place of honor for whomever the president happens to be, whomever the governor happens to be, and whoever the mayor happens to be. Now, In talking with my wife about this, one of the things that we're going to have to deal with is wall space. We have a little bit of a shortage of wall space as it is, but I'm confident that I can find a little spot for a little 8 by 10 portrait. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Um, As you can imagine, I despised President Trump. And like that woman who called and said that President Biden was a stain, Donald Trump is and was a disgrace to the presidency. He literally, in my opinion, was the worst president we've ever had in my lifetime. And he ranks up there with Andrew Johnson and um, Buchanan, who was right before the Civil War. So we'll put you as undecided for 2024. No, no, no. But seriously, I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. I would not have his photo anywhere in my residence, and I don't think it's a good idea for people to have the portrait of any president in their residence. What you just said reminds me of the old Soviet Union or Iraq under Saddam Hussein. I don't think we should revere our leaders that much because none of them are perfect. You know, I gave a lot of money to get President Biden into the White House. But I wouldn't want his picture in my – well, first of all, I couldn't see it. But I wouldn't want it in my house in the first place. I don't think we should ever hold our leaders up that high because none of them, as far as I can remember in my 50-plus years, have been worthy of such a spot in in my house. Yeah, uh, David – So I'm being equal at least. Yeah, no, I get that. And thank you, David. And look, I don't think there are any uh, perfect presidents, right? And – there are very few presidents that I voted for. I, I almost always go third party. I did vote for President Trump twice, but I, um, you know, I recognize the flaws of any president. But they're people. And honestly, listening to David and listening to the uh, prior caller, uh, Deanne, I believe, and listening to Al, I'm even more convinced that this is a good idea. Because if you listen to how Deanne described President Biden— And if you listen to how David describes President Trump, they are on – they're not on two different 
platforms. They're on two different planets, right, in terms of where both of them view the other, the friendly opposition. And one of the things that I would hope to do with this is by looking at a president that millions of people voted for, whether it's Obama, whether it's Trump, whether it's Biden, whether it's Bush or whomever, whoever's next. I think it sends a reminder to people that, look, I can't understand why anyone would vote for that guy. But there are still tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans that did. And these are my countrymen. And I live in the same place that they do. And I've got to see these people at work, see them at the store, see them at the market. And that uh, this is someone that a lot of people respect, even if I happen not to. So I honestly think the the other benefit of this, uh, listening to Deanne and David, is that maybe it would force us to understand our neighbors a little bit more and at least not relate to them as if they were aliens. I mean, did you hear how Deanne described President Biden? Did you hear how David described President uh, Trump? And I don't think that's healthy for people to be um, viewing the other party, not as the friendly opposition, but as enemies to be destroyed. And, you know, one of the stories, one of the same questions that I always ask whenever we have panel discussions on this show is what can we do to decrease polarization in this country? And look, I get what David's saying, that um, it, it, it's a little Maoist to ha- walk, ar- walk around with a, a photo of the president. Uh, I get I get that. But I think there's a big line between reverence, as David termed it, and respect. So 800-848-9222. Uh, by the way, I had some very good news yesterday. I had a uh, very nice phone call with uh, the folks that are are doing the upcoming series of uh, screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan in New Jersey. And uh, sure enough, I am confirmed to moderate the Q&A with William Shatner in both Red Bank, New Jersey and in Englewood, New Jersey on February 10th and 11th. And I'm very excited about that. And I'm hoping um, tomorrow to have a special discount code that our listeners can have so that they can uh, buy tickets uh, to this. I, I already bought tickets but um, I'm going to be at both shows, February 10th in Red Bank and February 11th in Englewood. So hopefully I'll see a bunch of you there. Uh, but the best thing you could do if you do want to come to those shows, and I'm already starting to come up with, with questions, but if you want to come to those shows is uh, follow my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. And as soon as I get that uh, special link and discount code, I'm going to put it up there on my Facebook page, hopefully uh, later today. My hey- dear Frank Morano. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'm I'm I was thinking to myself today: Is it too much if I bring ten of Shatner's books for him to sign? I don't think he would take issue with one. Would he take issue with two? Well, maybe three, probably. But ten, uh, eh. because that's how many I have, right? I mean, I have um, really at least ten. Right. So I don't know about that. Um, I, and it's funny. I wanted, you know, um, I'd interviewed uh, Mr. Shatner before, but I really have to thank uh, Jennifer Grodd, who's the guest booker for our network. And she 
was kind enough to get me more than 10 minutes with him because he was doing this tour promoting these uh, upcoming screenings and uh, she knew of my fondness for William Shatner and uh, she basically said, I'm going to try and get you more than 10 minutes because when I only have 10 minutes from someone, it's such, it's, it's such rushed. I feel like I can't even say hello properly. And she was able to get me, I think we did 15 or 16 minutes together, maybe even a little bit more. And um, I really owe her one because this, as far as I'm concerned, is a dream come true. It's the opportunity of a lifetime. I can die happy after uh, after this comes to fruition. So I was telling, I already bought Jennifer lunch as a thank you, but I was telling my wife that I really want to do something nice for Jennifer, maybe get her, get her flowers or something. And uh, and my wife said, well, you know, do you think that that um, that could be misconstrued uh, as, um, you know, as being uh, like uh, like a romantic gesture or something of that nature? And we happen to have another friend of ours over yesterday because, of course, it's our house and we have people stopping over all the time. And this was another woman. And she said, no, she thinks a flowers are a perfectly appropriate gift to give to a female colleague. And I'll be honest, that's that's the where where I came down to not roses or anything romantic. Just, I don't know, a a simple bouquet or something just as a, a gesture to say thank you. And, you know, Jennifer is very cool. So I think she is not somebody that would at all take that the wrong way. And she's a pretty good friend. She's been over our house and stuff like that. So I, I think she understands that it wouldn't be remotely flirtatious or romantic uh, at all. Matt, where do you come down on that? Do you think flowers are an okay gift for a female colleague? And No, because... You don't? No. Well, in this situation, no, because you're no. doing it for a specific reason. Yeah. If it was out of nowhere, then it might be misconstrued. But no, no. You know, oh, so you think it's appropriate. It's yeah, an appropriate because gift. she's yeah. going to know why, and you're doing it. I'm sure you're going to write a thank you right, note and right, say exactly. thank you for doing this. Yeah, so that's so, kind of oh, where that's, that's kind of where I am, and, and I think Rachel ultimately agreed after uh, Jessica said the same thing. But if people have a take on that, uh, they can uh, call in on that as well. 800-848-9222. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Frank. I say bring all 10 of the books to the uh, signing. I don't think they'll mind. You're boring now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> no, as you said, I love your idea, but I don't think I could uh, stomach it until this presidency is over. I agree with your first call, the uh, lady to call. Gotcha. So, so you that, like the you like the idea, but emotionally it would be tough for you to have a Biden photograph up there. Well, just because of what he's done to the country, not because of him himself. Gotcha. Brandon, I'm going to let you go just because your phone's a little wacky there. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Paul is in Dutchess County. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. Good morning. I wasn't going to call until uh, Angry David called in, but the picture idea is a good idea. But unfortunately, right now, the country is completely divided. There's no patriotism anymore. You know, there's no, you know, they want to get rid of everything, whether it's God and religion and, you know, men and playing in women's sports. So until the country becomes united once again, I don't think you're ever going to see uh, that that kind of action. Well, you know, I hear you. Right. But um, 
you know, the election of 1960, for instance, that was one of the tightest elections in history. You had people saying things about uh, John F. Kennedy in certain parts of the country, uh, calling him an N-word lover. Uh, you had um, protests and uh, people being beaten in protest because they wanted to do things like not have to uh, have black people ride in the back of buses. So there was a level of polarization and toxicity in the country, even in 1960, and we were pretty evenly divided politically, but there was still, at least in a lot of households, there were still these, uh, at least a respect for the office of the presidency. And, And to your point, Paul, like, I'm always looking for something that can be done to move the needle ever so slightly to uh, reduce, take down the temperature of things a little bit and reduce polarization in this country. And I think this might be the kind of thing that does serve that uh, th- that end. But you don't think that it would. I like I like the idea. And uh, OK, then I'll, I'll back you. I'll put a small picture of Biden up uh, to try it out. But actually, imagine I put a Trump picture up in my uh, household and people come in and I'm going to be I, I could be scorned. You know, so either way, I think it's a a losing proposition. Well, well, thanks, Paul. Right. I don't think um, I wouldn't have someone as a guest in my home that would judge me for the kind of presidents that I had pictured on the wall. You know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't do that at all. You come into my house. There's a in my office anyway. There's a uh, there's a photograph of of Trump and me. Uh, There's I think even a a Trump hat uh, on my bookcase somewhere. I wouldn't invite someone in there if they were going to uh, judge me because of that at all. Uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Seth in Brooklyn. Hello, Seth. Yeah, keep up the good work. I love your show. Thanks. Listen, listen, stay with me. Okay, let's say you have relatives or friends that are not American they're in, and they never saw a baseball game. You take them to a baseball game and say, we're going to root for the orange shirts against the blue shirts. And after the second inning... Your team, your team is winning 92 to nothing. They put a bet on the other's team, and at the end of the game, they want to get paid. They lost 92 to nothing, and they think they want to get paid. So, no, I could never be, I hate to say it, and it is awful, it is awful. I could never respect somebody. What can watching? What? Seth, you're breaking up a little bit there. Um, Seth, I have you. Sorry. Yeah. I, see, I mean, it's one of those days where uh, you never thought you'd miss Kenneth as a phone screener, but uh, well, it, it happens. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to uh, Tom in Staten Island. Hello, Tom. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Uh, real quick. Real quick. Flowers as an individual gift from just you. Not a good idea in this day and age. Really? It okay. The, it would have to be the right flower. And it would probably be better if it was from a group of people. So just go. Well, but she didn't one. do she didn't do anything to help the group of us. She just helped me. Uh, then, uh, well, maybe I'll throw Matt Blaze's name on the card as well. But I, why should Matt Blaze get credit? Maybe a gift card from one eight hundred flowers. How about that? Yeah, I'm anti gift card, Tom. That's my prime directive. <laughs> uh, so I agree with you about having some type of representation of a, uh, a president, a governor, or whatnot in, in the home. You have to teach respect of the office. And that is something that the, uh, 
we're lacking a great deal of the past 15, 20 years. And I think, you know, the, the advent of the Internet and social media and the, uh, everyone having their heads buried in their phones at the dinner table, if there's a family dinner, you don't have that conversation anymore. You know, as a kid, my parents had a bust of President Kennedy on the fireplace in our house. And as long as I can remember, it was there. Um, I don't think necessarily you need to have the picture of the current president, but at least the representation of a president that you looked up to and admired. Mm. Okay. So to me, it would, it, would, it would be Reagan. I, I grew up, I was a Reagan kid. So it would be, for me, it would be Reagan. I have pictures of my father and uh, Governor Cuomo at the teleport when it first opened on my wall. That was a big moment for my dad. I have pictures of myself, uh, Governor Patterson, and my father at NYU. You know, so it's respect of the person, respect of the office, um, it, and it helps start that conversation. And I always wondered, who, who is this? this why, why is this, this head on the fireplace? And then, you know, right, right, and, 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 Tom, and, and I'm going to let you go because your phone's a little screwy, too. Um, the Kenneth nostalgia syndrome afflicting a lot of our callers. But um, what you just said is exactly what I'm going for, right, is um, the curiosity of who is this person? Why is he on our fireplace? He's on the fireplace because he was he was he's the president. He was elected and he represents our country. Um, and that's the kind of conversation that I'd like to have with my son. And if, you know, if we have other children, other children. So, uh, you know, we do in my office, I have a a bobblehead collection of a lot of the presidents. There's Trump, there's Biden, uh, there's uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, President Truman, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, uh, even uh, President uh, Harrison, um, Benjamin Harrison, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, certainly a bunch of others. So I, um, uh, James Madison is up there, and I think, you know, that's fun. That's more about a bobblehead doll collection. But I think just a photo of whoever's there now, that's kind of the respect that I'm looking to have our household display. And hopefully it catches on as a trend. I'm glad that at least Al in Mayapak, the uh, veteran, agreed with me, right? So um, he sounds like he knows a thing or two about a thing or two. Hey, speaking of presidents, I have to mention this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today. But we may do an extended segment on this tomorrow or Friday. we got a lot of guests tomorrow, but maybe Friday. It was announced yesterday that Patrick J. Buchanan is going to be retiring from his uh, syndicated column. And I, I, I got to tell you, I am a huge admirer of Pat Buchanan. And his column is one that I would really look forward to every... Um, Every week. His was the only column that I subscribed to that I soon, as soon as I saw that it was in my email box, I stopped whatever I was doing to read it. I learned so much from his column over the years. And he's been a columnist for 50 years uh, and has really said and done some incredible things. And I've had the good fortune over the course of the last 12 years to get to know Pat a little bit, to meet him a couple of times, to interview him many times. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about my feelings of Pat, Pat Buchanan uh, tomorrow, but it is certainly the end of an era. 
with Pat Buchanan retiring his pen. And he's going to go down in history as one of the most consequential populist and conservative voices over the last 50 years. And somebody that uh, paved the way for people like Ross Perot and Donald Trump and others. And I th- even if you don't agree with Pat, and look, I worked actively against Pat's candidacy in 2000 when he was the Reform Party nominee. And I really regret that because I think had the country elected Pat Buchanan in 2000 instead of George W. Bush, we would have avoided a lot of the major catastrophes we've seen over the last 20 years. But I disagree with him on all sorts of stuff, um, uh, and which maybe we'll talk about tomorrow. However. I thought to myself, what can I say to really commemorate the end of an era? And then I realized I didn't have to say anything because the person that best summed up Pat Buchanan and his career as a media figure, a cultural figure, a historical figure was, believe it or not, Chris Matthews. When Pat Buchanan was fired by MSNBC in February of 2012, Chris Matthews, whose politics are light years from where Pat Buchanan's are, did a, an, an incredibly wonderful commentary explaining Pat's significance. And he, you know, think whatever you want about Chris Matthews. The guy is a wordsmith and he is an intellect. And I thought that um, Chris Matthews' words, which I went back and watched again, even though they're 11 years old, it bears repeating uh, on the end of an era and the demise of uh, Patrick J. Buchanan's syndicated newspaper column. I have invited Pat on the show, but I- I've gotten the sense the last couple of times that we've chatted that he is, might not be in the best of health these days. I don't know if that's the case, but it's kind of the impression that I get. So I don't, I don't expect him to come on again anytime soon, but I've made clear that he's more than welcome. Here was Chris Matthews on MSNBC, February of 2012, on the occasion of Pat Buchanan being fired by the network, bears repeating today. Let me finish tonight with Pat Buchanan. He's leaving the network and won't be working with us from now on. I miss him already. We've had dragged down fights right here on this set, and I've said things that drive him up a wall, and he said things that have driven me up a wall. We've done it here... You know, pretty good in a pretty good spirit most of the time, and have managed to be friendly and friends throughout it all. And obviously, I'm going to miss his cheerful, fun-loving, irascible presence around here. There are two aspects of Pat Buchanan I'd like to mention. One highly and wonderfully positive. The other, well, that's the one that gets him into trouble. The good quality above his relentless geniality is his deep, even formidable loyalty. Pat sticks up for his people like nobody I know. He will laugh with you about the frailties and foibles of those he served, but he never, ever quits being loyal to them. His most famous proof of loyalty was his strong defense of President Richard Nixon at his moment of greatest vulnerability. When so many others were running for the tree line, Pat Buchanan was out there in the open field with the national television cameras right on him. And here's what he said to enemy and friend alike. The president had conducted an administration for four years that had won the confidence or support of millions of Democrats. The president's stand upon the issues of defense and welfare, upon taxes and government, upon coercive integration and busing were closer to what the American people wanted than those of his opponents. But we won as well, Mr. Chairman, because of the quality and the character of our candidate. If one looks back over the political history of this country, there's only one other man other than Richard Nixon 
who has been his party's nominee for president or vice president five times. That is Franklin Roosevelt. Well, that's Pat testifying before the Senate Watergate Committee in the fall of 1973, defending Nixon in his hour of peril, using his sharp mind and wit to stand up for someone who had placed his trust in him, young Pat Buchanan, as a young man. Name another public figure who has built his public career on being a stalwart loyalist to Richard Nixon. Loyalty is the heart of Pat's being. He is loyal to country, to church, to neighborhood, to heritage. To Pat, the world can never be better than the one he grew up in as a young boy. Blessed Sacrament Church in grade school, Gonzaga High School, Georgetown University. No country will ever be better than the United States of America of the early 1950s. It's his deep loyalty to preserving that reality and all its cultural and ethnic aspects that has been his primal purpose and is what has gotten him into trouble, not just now, but over the years. And as those boys took back the streets of Los Angeles block by block, my friends, we must take back our cities and take back our culture and take back our country. Well, that's Pat Buchanan at the 1992 Republican National Convention, and he's never changed. It's Pat Buchanan yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But for all kinds of reasons, personal and professional, I will miss him. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite by then. The great William Shatner singing Rocket Man. This was originally a song by some other guy. I think Elton something. No, I know. It was Elton John. And uh, the revelation came out yesterday. I have not read this Mike Pompeo book, but apparently it's chock full of gems. And uh, again, I, I can't envision having the time to read anything ever again. But there's all sorts of stuff in there about Jamal Khashoggi and this and that. And one of the stories he's got in there is former President Trump, when he met with Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, he asked Kim Jong-un if he knew who Elton John was when he was trying to explain his little rocket man nickname for the North Korean leader because of this song. Because this was originally an Elton John song with uh, before Shatner perfected it. And uh, he was trying to explain to Kim Jong-un who he was. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that conversation between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un trying to explain who uh, Elton John is? Hey, uh, speak uh, on the subject of food, um, because I'm sorry I didn't get to finish the whole discussion about um, the pressure of cake yesterday. But I just want to tell you about this. Uh, I am a lover of cheese. And uh, I came across something so interesting yesterday, and it's a gig that will pay you to eat cheese every day for three months. I'm not joking. I am not joking. And um, this is a paid gig 
for cheese lovers. It will pay you $1,000 to eat cheese every night for three months and then write about your experiences in terms of talking about how much sleep that you have, you, how, how the sleep that you have is affected by the type of cheese that you're eating. So it will come as no surprise to you that I have applied for this. Uh, and I have posted a link to this at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan if you want to read uh, the article on this front. I hope I get chosen. But if I don't get chosen, I hope uh, some of you should get chosen. Lastly, on the food front, the real reason, and somebody sent this to me. I think this was one of our great listeners, Isaac. There was a wonderful article in Mashed.com. My Uncle John, who's not really my uncle, but he's a wonderful guy. He's like my uncle. He's my father's best friend growing up. When we used to go to his house for pizza, he would order his pizza uncut and have a pizza wheel, and then he would slice it up when you were there. And there was this great article in Mashed.com. It's a couple of years old now. But this article makes the case that you should always order your pizza uncut, even when you're getting it delivered. Because one of the many reasons is that you can cut the slices any way you want, any size you want, as many as you want, and it gives you a lot of flexibility. Additionally, um, he believes, the author of this piece, that if the pizza is cut long before it gets to you, the oils and the juices from the cheese, the tomato sauce, and the toppings seep into the cracks and cause the crust to get soggy. I'm telling you, I will never order a cut pizza again. I am only ordering, because we have two pizza wheels at home, I am only ordering uncut pizza from now on. Curious if anyone does that. 800-848-9222. I'm doing it now. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for starting your day with me, most of you. Uh, although I know some of you are staying up late with me, and I appreciate it either way. Uh, we would ask that you um, make an appointment to spend all four hours of this show with me each and every day. If you ever miss a portion of it, you can always catch up on the podcast. Uh, just go to Red Apple Podcast Network and search my last name, Morano, M-O-R-A-N-O, or go to the other or search the other side of midnight. So the Oscar nominations came out yesterday, and unsurprisingly, because I don't have time to even finish reading my email, I um, have seen very few of the nominees this year, and this is kind of when I ramp up my uh, my movie viewing. Uh, as, especially as football winds down and I could kind of know baseball yet. So to the extent that you have an hour or two each night, I can move towards movies. And 
It's very interesting. So the only major nominee that I've seen so far is Top Gun Maverick, which I really enjoyed. But for the first time in a long time, the highest grossing film of the year globally, Avatar The Way of Water, is nominated for Best Picture at the 95th Annual Academy Awards. What's more, the year's number two film, Top Gun Maverick, is also in contention. Now, Usually you don't see that. And this has been one of the complaints about the Academy Awards is that rather than actually award movies that people want to see, they pick kind of artsy films that are favorites of critics and that uh, don't necessarily have mass appeal. And they, they point, the experts, they point to that as one of the reasons that the audiences for these award shows, including the Academy Awards or the Oscars, have declined over the years. They're hoping that the fact that they've nominated some films that are big box office smashes this year could be the key to saving the Oscars from its ratings slump. It's no secret that the Academy Awards, like every other awards show, has taken a major hit in the ratings over the past several years. Last year's annual uh, Academy Awards ceremony, which was obviously marked by Will Smith getting smacked, it marked the second least watched and the lowest-rated telecast in Oscars history. I mean, that's astounding. With an audience of just 16.6 million, it came in second only to 2021's virtual ceremony, remember how lame that was, which could only muster 10.4 million viewers. The nearly 60% increase from 2021 to 2022 could be a glimmer of hope that maybe viewership is on the rise, but even before the pandemic, the Oscars were on a steady decline when it came to viewers. 2020, 23.6 million was nothing to scoff at when just a few years earlier, the viewership had been nearly double. So we've seen the Oscar audience dwindle, and um, some people believe that nominating these mass appeal films could lead to more viewers. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. The bottom line is there's definitely more than one reason why the Oscars aren't capturing the audience they used to. We And we've talked about it. And uh, I think the um, part of the problem is the formulaic, predictable nature of the ceremony itself. Part of it is that people haven't seen the movies. Part of it is that people are uh, turned off by Hollywood in general. Part of it is that because a lot of the great entertainment, and this is my sister Claudia's theory, this is the Claudia Claudia Annunziata Murano axiom, it's her belief that we're now living in a golden age where most of the major important entertainment is is being put forward on television rather than in motion pictures. And I say... Excuse me, don't you mean on radio, Claudia? And she said, no, I mean on television. Oh, thanks. So it's hard not to notice that it's also becoming increasingly rare that these nominations for the top prizes reflect films that people have actually gone to see. And nowhere was this more pronounced than a few years ago when um, they gave the award. That was the year of the wrong award where they announced that La La Land had won, which I liked. And it, they had not won, 
actually Moonlight was the winner. Moonlight was a film, I liked that too, but it was a film no one had seen. Whereas La La Land had millions of uh, dollars worth of revenue, and it was basically a celebration of everything people like about Hollywood and entertainment and music and movies. And instead, they gave it to a film that nobody had heard of and nobody had seen. So uh, I am curious what you think this will do here. Uh, Because a lot of years where the big winners are films that do well at the box office, the ratings do tend to go up. Uh, Titanic, when that won all those awards, they had a big viewership. When, when The year that Lord of the Rings won big at the Oscars, that had a big viewership. I, I don't know that I'm going to see this Avatar film. Honestly, I, I don't, I'm not prepared to invest the time. The film that got the most nominations is supposed to be very good, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's uh, called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. So um, that deals with some interesting subjects, and uh, people are very high on that. But um, I'm, I'm probably not going to see this Avatar film, uh, honestly. I didn't see the first one, and I don't want to jump just back, jump in with the second one without having seen the first one. And I don't want to spend f- five or six hours seeing films that I don't know that I have a desire to see in the first place. So 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you have a theory on this? You look, I see you muttering to uh, Christian over there. I think, I think your sister uh, has something there with that theory because going to the movies isn't as big an event mm-hmm. as it used to be. When you can see top stars on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and all these streaming services putting out original content movies. So why bother going to the movies, especially now? You know, back in the old days when you had to wait a year for a movie from to go from the theater right. Right. to the VHS. Now you wait like a month, and it's already out there. You know, and people just don't want to go out to the movies. Well, they just can see it at home. Or, like you said, if you didn't see the movie because it's some critic critics artsy movie, who wants to watch the Oscars? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's tough to disagree with that. I like going to the movies, but because I do too. Because of a variety. When was the last time you were at the movies? Before the pandemic. So I, I, I don't. Mine was not that long ago, but it was, I think November or I think it was November of twenty twenty one. So I mean, over a year since I've been to a, a multiplex, which is astounding to me. I used to go to the movies all the time, and uh, I am a lover of cinema. But you know, for a variety of reasons. mostly logistical and the fact that, you know, I have this backwards schedule and if if they opened movie theaters at 6 a.m., then I'd be at movies all the time. But um, it's it's also the fact that, as Matt said, if you are interested in seeing something, it's going to be available streaming and television and everywhere else in weeks, sometimes even at the same time. And I was sorry I didn't see Top Gun Maverick in theaters because... uh, not only am I told that the special effects are great and that the sound and the visual quality, it's really meant to be viewed in theaters, but uh, my friend Arthur, who saw it in the movies, said that there was a message from Tom Cruise at the beginning of the film indica- thanking people for coming to the movies and supporting movie theaters, which I like, which I do like that. I like to be thanked, right? I think everybody likes to be thanked. Um. Hey, let me just mention this because I had this on my list yesterday and we played Walk Like an Egyptian and I didn't get to this. So I want to mention this because I think it's neat before we run out of time. Archaeologists 
have confirmed that a papyrus scroll discovered at um, the necropolis site near Cairo in Egypt last year does indeed contain texts from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. This is the first time a complete papyrus has been found in a century. This is wild. This particular scroll has been dubbed the Waziri Papyrus. It's currently being translated into Arabic. And fans of the 1990, speaking of film, fans of the 1999 film The Mummy know that the Egyptian Book of the Dead plays a key role in bringing the cursed high priest Imhotep back to terrorize the living. And the reality is obviously quite different. There's not one magical copy of the Book of the Dead as depicted in the film. There are many versions over the centuries, all unique, with the choice of spells often tailored to the specific needs of the deceased royals and then later high-ranking members of Egyptian society. But these books were actually collections of texts and spells to help the deceased on their journey through the underworld. It wasn't meant to bring people back from the dead. It was meant to help people transition into being dead. And they are not holy texts like the Bible or the Quran. They were originally painted onto objects or written on the walls of burial chambers. Over time, they would add illustrations and spells were inscribed on the interior of coffins or the linen shrouds used to wrap the um, deceased. But this is a major discovery. One of the most famous spells in line with what we're talking about is something called the weighing of the heart, dating to around 1475 B.C., by which time copies of the Book of the Dead were commonly written on papyrus. And they would lead the deceased uh, before Osiris, where they would swear they had not committed any of 42 listed sins, and their heart was weighed on a pair of scales against a feather to determine if they were worthy of a place in the afterlife. I mean, it's really just, I think, so interesting. Copies of the Book of the Dead were made to order by scribes, and the scrolls could be as short as one meter, which, because we don't use the metric system in this country, I will tell you is 3.2 feet, and as long as 40 meters, which, because we don't use the metric system in this country, I will tell you is 131 feet. People knew of the existence of these scrolls in the Middle Ages, and they assumed that they were religious in nature because they were found in tombs. And um, after they end up translating one of these texts, one of these Book of the Dead uh, back in the 1840s, they they learned that it wasn't necessarily religious, but it was designed to, you know, it was designed as a series of spells to help people transition into the uh, the afterlife. But either way, this is really cool. And uh, the fact that archaeologists are confirming the discovery of a complete papyrus scroll containing text from the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead at such a major necropolis site is a huge archaeological discovery and kudos to all the archaeologists that were uh, responsible for it. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, yes. hi, hi Tom. Yes. I, I'd like to say several things. Yes. That uh, radio in general 
uh, terrestrial radio is is losing out, not uh, putting the award shows on radio. Uh, Tom, I agree. There's with a you. lot of people that don't have a TV Agreed. or or I, computer. Tom, that is the most correct thing you ever said. I'm not going to interrupt. I'm not. I'm going to. I'm going to let you make whatever point you want because I just want to reiterate what you're saying. There are so many instances, Tom, where I find myself needing to drive somewhere on a Sunday night when one of these award shows is on, are on, and I'm not able to hear it. And years ago, you used to be able to hear them all on the uh, on the on the radio. And I want people to know, um, and I don't want to embarrass you here, Tom, but I want to give you a little credit. People should know that Tom literally put his money where his mouth is, and three or four years ago, Tom. I'm not joking here. This is completely sincere. Tom, who you're listening to right now, actually used his own money to buy ads on a New York radio station saying that radio stations should be carrying not just these award shows, but other noteworthy events. Now, all of us, you, me, all of us that bloviate all day long about how things should be this way or (coughs) things should be that way, who but Tom in the Bronx has actually put their money where their mouth is and bought ads to make that a reality? And I really, in all sincerity, Tom, I'm not being patronizing. I give you a lot of credit for that. I, I really admire you for that. Yeah, well, all right. Thank, thank you. Thank you very You're much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I, I, I like, I like to, I like to also say that what uh, what should be done. Uh, with movie houses, I guess movie houses are just uh, dying out, you know, left and right. But I guess the well, the public would just have to go to the ones that are still in operation. That's all. Well, I think you're right, Tom. And look, there was an article yesterday, uh, and thank you for the call, that Regal Cinemas is closing a bunch of their movie houses. So, uh, you know, in some ways, and I realize the analogy fails, and I don't want people to get upset with me when I say this, but in some ways, what the movie houses are going through is the same thing that the churches are going through. Did you hear what um, what Kevin McCormick is saying about churches? Did you read that Guardian article about the churches? You could change a couple of words, and it would be as true of Regal Cinema's closing um, movie houses. For whatever reason, tastes change over time. And in the 50s, people would spend Sunday mornings in church, and they would spend Saturday nights in, in, in movie houses. And these days, they're not doing either. And for people that think that that's a shame, I think we need to figure out what the churches are doing in terms of branding that they could be doing better and what the multiplexes are doing in terms of branding that they could be doing better. Right. And I, I know people are going to get upset with that, but it's true. Everything I just said is true. 800-848-9222. As Kurt Angle would say, it's true. It's damn true. Chris on Long Island. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank, a couple of things. Um, I called about the presidency, but I was on hold for a half an hour. So I'm going to, I'll switch topics like you did. Um, trivia question. What were the last number one and number two grossing films to be nominated for Oscars? When was the last time that happened? Um, to be nominated, not to win. Right. Well, only one can win the best picture. To win the best picture. Right. So, um, so before I take a guess, because I'm not going to look it up, I'm going to go with the exercise. You know the answer to this. 
I do know the okay, answer. Okay, so I'm going to guess that it was um, that it was one of the ones that I said. I'm going to guess that it was uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, no, you could go back exactly 40 years ago is when the last time it happened. So uh, what was that, Evening Star? Uh, 40 years ago, 1983. Yeah. Right, was that Evening Star? Terms of Endearment? What was Evening Star? No, it was E.T. and Tootsie. Oh. oh, I see, okay. Okay. Right, so, okay. That's number one. And if you don't mind, because like I said, I called about... Yeah, go ahead. Be my guest, Chris. Go ahead. All right. I think the major problem is, and I say this to all my friends, I'm 60 years old. um, I'm a libertarian. And I go, this is the problem with both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans. They never want to talk about issues and policy anymore. You're not allowed to... You can't even debate it anymore. I mean, that's all libertarians do is we like to talk policy. And, you know, the problem, it started, I think, with Bush, with the war, and then, you know, carried a little bit over to Obama. But the absolute respect for the office was completely lost uh, when Trump became president. And I'm not a big fan of Trump, but I'll say this. The, the Democrats really started all this lack of respect for the office. OK, I mean, a lot of them didn't even show up to his inauguration, if you remember, elected officials. And then another thing I agree. Is, I agree with uh, I agree with uh, that. I mean, it was, I thought that was horrible. I think because right. you should have some respect for the office. Right. And the same thing is, and I tell my friends this all the time, all the liberals, you know, I can't believe these sports teams that didn't show up. The Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl and they didn't show up to the White House. I mean, just think about that. That is the so listen, I didn't like President Obama. And I didn't like when the one guy from the Bruins didn't show up. It was one guy, a goaltender. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't agree with him. I'm like, put your differences aside for one day and and be honored to be asked to go to the White House. So what I'm saying is when the Philadelphia Eagles didn't, and that's why I hate the Philadelphia Eagles, they didn't show up when Trump was president. I mean, you you couldn't have enough respect to just show up for, you know, when the president of the United States asks you, and put your policies aside for one day for crying out loud. I mean, I'm just saying, as a libertarian, I go back to this, Frank. I will talk policy till the cows come home. You want to talk about, you know, legalizing drugs or abortion or whatever? We can have a rational discussion and hopefully come to a meeting of the minds about it. But we've lost that in this country. It isn't about policy anymore. It's like, is the person that's running the country a racist or is he uh, anti-Semite? Right. I, I, mean, I, I agree with yeah. so much of what you said. Um, the one area that I think I may part company slightly with you, and I, I agree with almost everything that you said uh, for all the reasons that you stated. But um, the one thing that I've noticed that we have a tendency to do, and I'm talking about people of every generation, is we tend to uh, mythologize Yesterday, And we tend to mythologize history and assign this reverence to issues and policy that was maybe never there. Do you, you, um, William Henry Harrison, when he ran for president in, I believe, 1840, do you know what his campaign slogan was? No, I'm, you've mentioned it before, right. too. I know so, okay, it's very so, hateful. Yeah, right. so, no, his campaign slogan in 1840 was Tippecanoe and Tyler too, and it That's was right, 
And basically, that was just as um, geared towards moving the masses and towards marketing and mass appeal as anything as Make America Great Again or as uh, or or as Hope and Change or anything. So the only point that I'm, I'm making, Chris, and thank you for the call. Well said. The only point that I'm making is there's a level of superficiality that has always been present in American politics, always from the dawn of the republic. From before the Republic, the difference now is if you hear some of these callers describe, uh, oh, they would never have a Trump photo or they would never have a Biden photo, is there was a time when once the election was over, you realize, okay, it was t- it's time for all of us to, we're in this together. We're all, this is all our country. We have to at least show some respect for the president, even if we don't like the person who's in that office. That is gone. That is Long gone. And I think that's a real shame. 800-848-9222. Hey, Chester in Baltimore has been holding a while. Uh, let me get to him. Chester, hello. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Morning. You brought back memories with the president being on the wall. There was four things on our wall growing up, and it went out in the late 80s, early 90s. And those four things was a picture of the president, Jesus himself, then you had the Last Supper, and then you had the rug with the dogs playing poker. <laughs> I, still, I still have those dogs on my wall. Right. Now, the thing that scares me the most is the one, there's a lot of Christians that won't keep a picture of Jesus on their wall because they're afraid of offending somebody. This is my home. I don't care if I offend you. Well, I'm with you on that front. Um, I think, look, if somebody's going to visit your home and they're offended, that's that's kind of their problem, Chester. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you should worry about um, decorating your home. I mean, look, obviously, it's a different situation if you're talking about hate symbols and if you invite a, 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 a Jewish and a black interracial couple over and you you your walls are covered with Nazi propaganda and Ku Klux Klan propaganda. But I don't think anybody's uh, talking about anything like that. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Hello. Sorry about that, Frank. Me too, Rick. Me too. Yeah. I, anyway, about the uh, award shows, uh, two things. I think, first of all, people are not watching them anymore because you get more political stuff and wokeness than you are getting actual entertainment. I just want to see entertainment, just like with sports. I don't want politics involved, but that's what it seems to be. It's a political agenda rather than an entertainment show. Well, that, are you yeah. a, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Okay. Are you aware of the new qualifications that are needed for someone to qualify for an Oscar? Yes. Yeah. We, we covered that um, significantly at the time. The only thing that I would um, that I would uh, you know disagree with you on somewhat is that – you know, the Academy Awards have always been, you know, pretty, pretty political. I mean, you remember the uh, the speech uh, that uh, Vanessa Redgrave gave back in the 70s over the Zionist hoodlums. I mean, um, the, I mean that was back in the, the heyday yeah, of and, the and, Academy and, Awards. And, and, and uh, what's his name who didn't show right. up because it had that Indian girl ticket? Right. Marlon Brando. Yes. Right. Well, so aside from it, but those were the exceptions. Now it's kind of the rule. It's it, every joke seems to be political. Every these and and by the way, those people did not do well after that. 
Well, you know, Vanessa they were, Red... kind of, they were kind of ostracized. Well, I, I don't think that's know? true. Vanessa Redgrave, uh, she did do well, and so did Marlon Brando. And, um, you know, uh, obviously Michael Moore, uh, when he won his uh, documentary Oscar for Fahrenheit 911, he did, um, you know, he made, he made it overtly. Uh, political. So, and and those were all uh, award shows that had high viewership. So, I don't think it's just the politics. I do think that uh, look, we I know you're right because we when we whenever we do this segment, callers call in and say, "Oh, I don't watch this because I'm sick of the politics." I don't right. think, uh, but I don't think that's the only answer. I think there are a variety of causes um, as to why these award shows have fallen out of favor. All right, let me read you an email here. And uh, this is very true, this email. Usually we save this for um, Tuesdays, but this is important, okay? Um, I received this yesterday, and I don't know the person that sent it to me. It is. It had to do with the $1,000 minute, okay? And this person... Who wrote this? Let me find this here. Well, you know, Larry's been holding a while, too. Let me take Larry's call first, and then I'm going to read you this email. This is worth waiting for, believe me. Larry, hello. Yes, hello, Frank. You hear me? I hear you perfectly, Larry. Okay, you know, what I want to, I have, okay, let me just get my thoughts. Okay, I think that um, you wanted to inspire respect with a picture on the wall. Of, I think it's a, it's a noble thought. Um but I, I really well I, I don't I don't agree with doing it implementing it because I think that you shouldn't create dissonance between the standards in society currently and what's going on at home and create confusion. In other words, if we're destroying statues of previous presidents, it's not a, a good idea to simultaneously do that. Well, I don't think I we should. I don't think we should be destroying statues of previous presidents either. I mean, that's the whole idea. I mean, I, I think that's the exact opposite of what we should be doing as a culture. I understand that, but I want to. I want to inspire you to implement. If you want to do something on, um, uh, in the vanguard, I think, and, and productive. I think what you should do is uh, you, you should make a rule on your show that whenever a caller such as David calls in and expresses um, random, uh, unjust, unsupported hatred, that he that he be, that he stop and, and, and challenge to give a reason for his hatred. If he cannot give a reason for his hatred, he should be terminated as a call because you cannot waste your time with people that are not worthy of airtime. Yeah, I hear that, Larry. Look, uh, thank you. There's a lot of people that don't like President Biden, a lot of people that don't like President Trump, right? And I have, honestly, I'm so bored of the whole Trump sucks versus Biden sucks conversation. It's formulaic, it's repetitive, it's old, it's yawn-inducing, and it's really, I believe, talk radio as a medium of communication, as a medium of information and entertainment, is capable of so much more. The last thing that, look, I, get, I know David, David's been in studio. You ask David why he doesn't like Donald Trump, I guarantee you, without a script, he will go on for three and a half hours listing reasons he doesn't like Donald Trump. Uh, I ask uh, Deanne from Westchester, I guarantee you, why she doesn't like uh, Joe Biden. I guarantee you she could go on for five hours as to term as to why she doesn't like Joe Biden. And I, I have heard every one of those arguments again repeatedly. So I am absolutely not going to do that. Unfortunately, and I hate to do this because I do think we need more education in the civic realm. But. 
what I think we need to be doing I, I, on the radio anyway is getting away from a lot of that talk because it's vitriolic. And I think we need to, you know, remember when I had Ralph Nader's sister on this show and we were talking about raising children and uh, I pointed out how how many similarities I've heard between conservative parents and liberal parents when it comes to child rearing. You know what she said? She said, look, we all bleed the same. There's We have so much more in common then we have a part uh, when it comes to our politics. Now, let me read you this email that I got. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Frank, I'm so tired of hearing number seven callers miss the likes of the capital of Italy, Harrison Ford movies, Prime Minister of Canada, Giants Lost 2. I continue to enjoy the show but wish to end the non-winner category called 10 questions in 60 seconds. I'll keep trying. And then he points out how he tried to be on this before, and he's Canadian, so he lost on who was on the dime. I've been enjoying the T-shirt and and cap. Thanks for those items. I'll keep trying. Listen to what he writes here. This is groundbreaking. This could be the verge of a major scandal. I'll keep trying, but I had two phones on the go last Friday morning, and I heard six back-to-back rather than six and then seven on the second phone. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then the seventh caller missed the seventh question that morning. Um, so what, unless I'm misunderstanding this email from Frank Coach Corrigan in Canada, he's saying that Kenneth, rather than pick the seventh caller for this contest, said the number six twice and didn't reward the seventh caller. Matt, you're back there. Uh, Let let me ask you, Kenneth is not there now because he's doing some of Alex's responsibility. Have you ever seen this kind of behavior from Kenneth? No, I have not. Honestly. No, I have not. (laughs) Why would this guy make this up, this email here? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. I don't know. But I I know it does say something in the rules about the seventh caller or about... We picked a caller to the, at the discretion of the station, hmm. something to those lines. Well, I'm just so wondering, he, though, why? If he, if, he, if he said the number six twice, I don't know that he did or he didn't because I'm doing other things as well. Could it have happened? Might have happened. I don't know. Might Does have that been. make anything different? No. Well, uh, you, have to, you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why is he not picking the seventh caller? I don't know why he would say six twice. Neither do I. Neither do I. And I well, Unless he just got off because other things are happening and he and he got distracted and said six twice. We're going to continue to investigate this. Um, but if you are the seventh, seventh, seventh caller to 800-848-9222, we're going to give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Just call 800-848-9222. And if you can do that, you can answer 10 relatively easy trivia questions in 60 seconds, and you're the seventh caller, as determined by Christian, and with maybe hopefully without any influence from Kenneth on this one, then you'll be $1,000 richer. Seventh caller right now, 800-848-9222. You'll have your opportunity to answer some trivia questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Now, I love this song. Jungle Boogie. Obviously, you might remember it from uh, the 1994 film Pulp Fiction. Uh, Obviously, you might remember it from just being a great song. But it plays a pivotal role in the soundtrack of that motion picture. And um, 1994. Can you believe that's almost 30 years ago? (sighs) For the price of just a... uh, That's back in the days when men were men, women were women... Small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. And for the price of a Tamagotchi, every preteen could be an electronic pet owner. For the price of a fitted jacket, a short skirt, and some high heels, every woman could be a trendsetter. Uh, Those days, for better or worse, are over. And it is time for... Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000 Here's your host Frank Murano Thank you Chris Libertini Let us welcome Bob in New Jersey Hello Bob Good morning Frank, how are you? I'm doing well Bob, thanks for listening to the program Have you heard this segment before? Yes, I have. I usually put you on first thing in the morning when I'm working out before I go to school. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, well are you a teacher? Yes, I am. All right. Well, good. Great. What, what kind of what grade do you teach? I teach high school. I teach science. Oh, okay. Great. All right. Well, I appreciate you listening and uh, and keeping us on while you uh, while you work out. All right. So, if you know the rules, as now you're going to be tough to beat because you're uh, you're a teacher. If you know the rules, we'll get started. If you're ready. Okay. Ex- absolutely. No problem. Okay. What is President Biden's first name? Yeah. What is the nickname for the Academy Awards? The Academy Awards. Um, oh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Oscar? Yes. Uh, who? What does FBI stand for? Federal Bureau of Investigation. Who is the senior U.S. Senator from New York? Chuck who played bartender Sam Malone on Cheers? Uh, dancing. Who wrote the novel Pride and Prejudice? Oh, Pride and Prejudice. Oh, I don't know. I'll pull a, a Ralph Cramden. Humma, humma, humma. I don't know. I'm sorry. Take a guess. Take a guess. Famous author, female. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just don't know. All right. It was uh, Jane Austen. Jane Austen wrote Pride and Prejudice. You you got up to question six, Bob. You were doing really well at a good pace. I'm going to put you on hold and give your information to Kenneth. We'll send you a a consolation prize of some sort, okay? Thank thank you so much. Take care, pal. Hey, thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Um, If you want to get for yourself the consolation prize that uh, that Bob is going to be given for free, you can go to our online store, store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. And if you use the promo code FRANK15, then uh, you will be able to get a 15% discount on any merchandise that you purchase in that, uh, in that online store. And uh, tomorrow... I'm going to tell you how you can get tickets to see William Shatner and me, my pal Bill, uh, on February 10th and 11th in New Jersey. See, I had purchased tickets already. So now, I mean, my wife is still going to go. 
and my brothers. But uh, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll see if but my sister wants, <laughs> wants my other ticket. You know, it's funny. I, I'm just going to say that this one thing, because I have a feeling there are going to be a lot of stories that develop from this Shatnerian experience coming up in February. Um, I was talking with the organizers <laughs> of this event yesterday. And they said, well, you know, you've seen this film before, obviously, and, you know, you'll have you'll obviously come prepared with a lot of great questions. But and it's going to be a screening of Star Trek II: the Wrath of Khan. But they said, you got to get to the venue before the screening. Then, you know, since you and Bill have both seen the movie before and you don't really necessarily need to sit through it, the whole thing anyway. Um, Bill usually has dinner during the screening. They said, would you, would you want to have dinner with Bill during the screening? Oh, my God. And so I said, well, oh, my God. I don't know. I have to see oh if I can. I have oh to see if God. I have, uh, I have time. I do enjoy that film. I don't want to, I don't want anything taking away from it. So <laughs> you can imagine my reaction when they asked me that. So we'll see where that goes. Well, but that'll be uh, as exciting for me as Sid Rosenberg gets with uh, having dinner with Eric Adams. Uh, by the way, I'm insane. Uh, my sister-in-law Sharon. I don't want to say too much because uh, you know it's her business, not mine. But she is a matter of hours away from having a, a baby, her first child, which we're all very excited about. And uh, we're all excited for Carmine to become an older cousin for the first time. So we're excited about that. But so she's stuck in the hospital with nothing to do. So what do people who are stuck in the hospital with nothing to do do is they listen to me. So Sharon weighed in on the flower conversation. And this is what she said. And uh, if, you, if you're just tuning in, uh, basically the, the co-worker of mine who booked this interview with William Shatner, I, I want to do something nice for her as a token of appreciation for really helping a dream of mine come true, which is to be able to share a stage with William Shatner and talk to him about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and have dinner with him, right? I mean, I I had to actually pinch myself during that phone call to make sure that I was uh, not dreaming and awake and then keep a mirror under my nose to see if it fogged up to make sure I was alive and hadn't gone to heaven because that's kind of exactly what I... I always fantasize about. But so Sharon, um, so I wanted to do something nice for Jennifer Grodd, who's just great. And I thought maybe flowers would be appropriate. But my wife said, oh, maybe that's a little little too, you know, in this day and age, maybe that's not the appropriate thing. So Sharon said, this is what she said. She had an interesting perspective. She said, if my boss gave me flowers, I wouldn't think anything of it. But if a male colleague did, I would think it's a little too personal very interesting now you contrast that with what ellen is saying and ellen sent me a text an sms text message at 8168 morano that's 8168 m-o-r-a-n-o and you know what i like about ellen everything everything but among the things that i like about ellen is she begins her sms text messages to me by saying frank it's ellen now i like that because it doesn't force me to go back and search her text messages. There are 20 people with 516 area codes that text me every day. I have no idea who any of them are. 
if they would just say, hey, Frank, it's Jimmy, it's Jerry, it's Jack, it's John. I don't know why they all have J names, but they do. So she says, Frank, it's Ellen. That's ridiculous. Of course you can give Jennifer a beautiful bouquet of flowers. It's a lovely idea. So maybe we will have Jennifer and uh, Sharon engage in a prepared debate on this subject rather than just um, impromptu conversation. By the way, uh, she's giving birth at Stony Brook Hospital. So if we have any uh, listeners at Stony Brook that want to upgrade Sharon to a nicer room, that would be very nice. Because what happened when Rachel was giving birth, we they put us in this just uh, – I don't want to say anything negative about this hospital. But they put us in this terrible room. I mean, it was just awful. It was uncomfortable. It was small. It was tiny. Uh, I, was, I slept in a chair. It was just horrible. And then Curtis Lewa goes on the air for five hours straight mentioning the hospital that Rachel had given birth at and making up all sorts of stuff about, uh, about my son and how he was uh, – uh, I think whatever he was at the time, 13-pound baby, which, of course, he wasn't. But the people from the hospital, they heard Curtis going on and on about this. And they found out that we were, you know, we were in the hospital. They upgraded us to this room that wasn't a room. It was basically a presidential hotel suite. We went from almost being in a dungeon to being in a a five star luxury suite where uh, instead of eating gruel, right, they gave us both a, a choice of uh, you know the most magnificent menu items you could imagine, spacious window. I mean, it was just it was like going from the outhouse to the White House. It was that stark a contrast. And um, so, if anybody wants to do that for uh, for Sharon. How many Sharons could be giving birth today? So uh, please feel free to upgrade her. She is well-deserving, uh, she and uh, her husband, James. All right. Um, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment, but uh, I know Charles has been eager to uh, comment for a while, so I don't feel like it's fair to limit him to only 15 seconds. Charles, uh, you've been on hold a while. Thanks. Charles. Are you, I should talk now? You, Hello. Or... Give it a shot. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Okay, hi. Um, regarding the uh, respect for the presidency, you know, picture of the president in, in the House, I, it has merit, that's for sure. And if you wanted to do it, let's say, with a young child like your son Carmen as he grows up, to have the picture of, of Biden, whatever, that, that, that's fine because he's not prejudiced yet. He's not one-sided yet. But the way it's for the polarization today, uh, if, if a leftist, if you invited a leftist, a real leftist, uh, to see your home. And he knows that you voted for Trump twice, and you even have a picture, the audacity, you have a picture together with Trump. First, he would check, he would only go to go if he was be- able to benefit something like, uh, he believes you know the number, uh, the, the lottery winning numbers tomorrow night, what's going to happen tomorrow night. That's the only reason he would go. And he would check a thousand times that nobody, none of his friends, God forbid, sees him walking in. And then he'd have a nightmare that a satellite going faster than the speed of uh, sound, might catch a picture of him going in. Then, when he sees the picture of Trump on the wall, that's because he didn't give him the winning numbers yet, he would think, why would this argumentative, narcissistic, treasonous, insurrectionist moron be president? And those anti-Biden, that went into a, a sort of picture of Biden, they would say, why would I honor the head of a crime family? So it's so polarized that it wouldn't work. But the idea is great. And 60, 70 years ago, it could have worked. 
now it's way too, it's almost enemies one of another. Right, right, and, also, and, I wanted to say that I'm disturbed because you said something very disturbing about five minutes ago. You said that, you know, somebody can talk five hours anti-Biden. The most I can do is three and a half hours. <laughs> you know somebody five hours without repeating? Without repeating? Well done, Charles. Well that, done. Okay. Um uh, uh, very brief here, and then we'll do 15 seconds of fame. If you want to start queuing up, you can, 800-848-9222. What I think Charles just described inadvertently is why I think it's so important to do this. The friendships and relationships that I have um, are much deeper than political preference. My, my brother is a Marxist, right? Um, it, I'm sure I voted for people that he, he despises. It would never occur to either of us to let, um, you know, either of our political preferences infringe upon our relationship. I had a party on Saturday. The most recent chairman of the Democratic Party was there. The most recent chairman of the Republican Party was there. I have relationships, be they romantic ones, uh, familial ones, platonic ones or professional ones that are so, so much deeper and so much more important than who people voted for, I would never in a thousand years make a determination of uh, who to have a relationship with based on their political preference. Never in a thousand years. And uh, that would be, and I think the fact that there are so many people that do, I think that's part of the problem in the country today, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, so far, it's very clear that I think it's Al and one other guy, and Al Mayapak, a veteran, one other fella, and me. And so far, everyone else disagreed with this idea, but that's fine. I'm used to being in the minority. 15 seconds of fame, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My thanks to Andy B. for this terrific, uh, terrific song, which we end the show with half the time. Uh, meantime, it is your opportunity to be heard on any subject you want. You think I'm a boob. You think I'm wrong about everything. You think I'm right about everything. You want to tell a joke, uh, give your friend a plug, make a, a political comment of some sort, talk about aliens, the Oscars, Azerbaijan, or... Uh, my sister-in-law Sharon's forthcoming child. Now's the time. You just get 15 seconds to do it. 800-848-9222. Time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Mike! Another Mike. Yeah, what's the, uh, the thing is for... 
along with family on boats. I got that are coming. And another mic. Always a good show, Frank. You know, I get a kick when you read some of these emails of people complaining about this and complaining about that. You know, some people are whiners. They should get a chunk of cheese with their wine. And Sidney Rosenbaum, Rosenberg, he's the biggest whiner. He's a wannabe Italian. He's a wannabe Howard style. And another mic. Good morning, Frank. I love when Pat Buchanan sat across the table from Tom Braden, flinging opinions, opinions at each other on Crossfire. Back when CNN was legit, go Buchanan, go. Ray in Woodhaven. Seinfeld and Costanza's idea for a sitcom was a show about nothing. I think it's kind of cool. Your show is about everything. Well, that's nice, Ray. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I thought that was going to be an insult. Larry in Brooklyn. Frank, single girls love to be seen in public. Climate change is caused by astronomical cycles. The rest is all weather or a lie. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Tomorrow, Brian Kilmeade, the AC Report. Uh, We're still trying to get to the bottom of what's happening with these whales and a lot of other things. Frank Moreno, good day.